Upon completion of his telephone call, Agent Farika left the kitchen and passed through the barbershop. Mr. Bruno stopped him in the presence of Polina and asked him how he knew Polina. Polina attempted to say something and Bruno told him to be quiet. Polina remained quiet. Bruno then asked, did you ever see him before? Pointing to Polina. Farika replied that he had seen him many times. Polina became excited. Special Agent Barika then suggested to Mr. Polina that if he has any problems, he should see Mr. Bruno. Bruno laughed at this, and Polina became very angry. Agent Barika then began to depart, and Mr. Migo said that he wanted to talk further. Agent Barika then told Mr. Polina and Mr. Bruno that he, too, has a capo who tells him when to go and when to come. Polina, at this remark, appeared speechless with emotion. Bruno was no longer laughing and said nothing. Agent Farika then departed. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters, and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. I'm really excited for today's episode, which has been a long time coming, in which we'll be diving back into the life and times of Angelo Bruno, the longtime boss of the Philadelphia Cosa Nostra. For those of you that are maybe new to the genre, Angelo Bruno would rule the Philadelphia underworld for over 20 years and has the distinction of presiding over one of the most peaceful time periods in that city since the mob became active in the Philadelphia area. Ultimately, Bruno fell victim to plots from within and was murdered in 1980 in one of the most infamous and enduring events in the history of Cosa Nostra in this country. Now, a few months back, I did an episode on Bruno's rise, which covered his early years all the way up to how he ascended to the position of boss, along with a, a little bit of early Philadelphia mob history sprinkled in. That episode, uh, believe it or not, was incredibly well received, and if you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to go on over and watch that one before you actually press play on this one. Now, my original plan was to complete the Bruno series in what I thought was going to be just two parts, but unfortunately I found that the story is just too, too big, uh, and I have since realized that there was so much going on, even in the 1960s, let alone the 1970s, that I was going to have to break things down even more. 
In my experience, now, most content creators sort of gloss over the 1960s when it comes to Bruno, and the, the focus tends to be on either his rise to boss up until about 1959, or more towards the end of his career in the later 1970s. And you rarely hear what he was like in his prime and of all the things that were going on during that time. Uh, and that's what we're going to cover today. And let me tell you, Bruno was not idle during the 60s. There were a lot of things happening, and quite frankly, it would have been a lot to deal with. And while it was probably the most peaceful era in Philadelphia's history, things were by no means calm and totally peaceful, as I'm about to show you. So we'll be talking about the 1960s in terms of all the activity surrounding Bruno, and then we'll do an episode just on the mob-related hits associated with Philadelphia in the 60s and maybe even the 70s, because that that is just a can of worms by itself. I'm not necessarily going to cover the, the hits in this episode, though there were plenty. Uh, and after those, we'll cover Bruno's decline in the 1970s in another episode, and then the events surrounding his murder and the fallout in its own episode. It's a big story, <laughs> and I've kind of realized that two or even three parts just won't do it justice and because i'm detail oriented i don't like to skip over details and i can be as you know long-winded i wanted to make sure i covered as much as i could to give you the total picture on one of the most legendary bosses outside of new york in the history of cosa nostra so that's the plan the entire angelo bruno story likely in four to five parts total maybe when i'm done I'll put it all together and you can watch like nine hours straight of me talking uh, about Angelo Bruno. Now, before we get into the episode, I'd like to remind you to hit that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications. If you're already a subscriber, please share the show and help my small but mighty mafia channel grow. I know I don't put out episodes as often as other channels, but that's because I do a tremendous amount of research and, you know, by the way, full-time job, lots of kids, uh, and a lot going on. This is my, my side project, my side hobby, but I have a passion for it, and I am really trying to get this channel to grow and I could use your help. If you're listening to the audio only version, do me a favor, leave a review, good, bad, or ugly. Just let me know what you think uh, over on Apple. Also, you'll probably notice if you're watching on YouTube that I'm wearing members only podcast branded swag. Uh, I created it a little while ago. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, and while I certainly don't want to push anyone to buy my merch, if you want to support the show, I would really appreciate it. I don't really feel like I'm big enough or anything like that to to have merch. I just wanted to create it because I thought it was cool to, to wear around myself. If you want to buy something to support the show, again, no pressure, uh, but you can just head on over to my merch store. You can find it by going to my YouTube channel and going to the About page, which has a link over to the store on Teespring. Or you can go to my website at www.membersonlypodcast.com and click Merch in the navigation area. Uh, like I said, I've been wearing some of the shirts that are available in some of my recent episodes, and I'll be adding more to the collection in the near future. Again, no pressure at all for anyone to buy. It's just another outlet for me to promote my show, and I just hope that everybody understands. All right, let's get into the episode. Part two, Angelo Bruno and what I'm just going to call the golden era of the Philadelphia LCN.
Now, when we last left you in around 1959 or 1960, Angelo Bruno had just ascended to the boss position within the family after a dispute with acting boss Antonio Mr. Mig Polina, in which the commission sided with Bruno and Mr. Mig was subsequently demoted. As is later reported, Bruno was said to have spared Mr. Mig, which is really what ultimately earned him his nickname, the Gentle Don, or sometimes you'll hear him called the Docile Don. And while Bruno was 100% more of a racketeer than many of his counterparts, we uncovered at least two instances in the 1950s and even earlier uh, where he took care of a piece of work personally. And as you'll see, when this series is done, there was nothing gentle about him when it came to being the boss. He wasn't one to forego ordering violence when a necessity, though he preferred to arbitrate issues peacefully when possible. That said, I think that persona has been bestowed upon him over the years in part because of the legend created in the aftermath of the dispute with Polina, but also because of how the levels of violence amped up so significantly, and I mean significantly, after Bruno was gone once Testa Scarfo and Stampa respectively took over. So in effect, his era looked docile by comparison. Hindsight is 2020, right? Even though it had its share of violence, just as most other families around the country did at the time. And in what I found, the 1960s in particular in Philadelphia, while there was violence, paled in comparison to what happened throughout the 1970s and especially the 1980s. Now, by the early 1960s, Bruno was already a very rich man, though he didn't openly flaunt it, and his home on 934 Snyder Avenue in Philadelphia certainly wouldn't indicate his true wealth. It was a very modest row home, not dissimilar from the modest home his good friend Carlo Gambino had. They really seemed to share the same philosophy and modesty in that regard. Now, before we jump into the more chronological timeline, let's do a quick recap on where the bulk of Bruno's money and power was coming from around the time just before he became the boss. Angelo Bruno had really began his criminal career in the bootlegging business back in the 1930s and continued to make millions off of that racket well into the 1940s and 1950s, with just one of his illegal stills said to have been generating over $1 million in the 1940s. That is a ton of money. From there, he made his name in the Italian lottery, or the numbers, as it's more widely known, working for a man named Frank Matteo, who was connected to Hyman Harry Stromberg, otherwise known, pretty famously, as Nick Rosen, before becoming a partner with Philadelphia LCN member Marco Reginelli, and then rising to the top of the Philadelphia underworld as probably the top numbers guy in the city by the late 1940s and early 1950s, despite still being somewhat of an independent. He was taking pieces of crap games all over the city and also had pieces of games going in Trenton, New Jersey through his cousin John Johnny Keys Simone, alias at this time was also John Casablanca, great name, as well as a piece of games run by his good friend Carl Papi Ippolito and Genovese member Charles Charlie the Blade Tureen out of Mount Holly, New Jersey, another great nickname. At a certain point, because numbers and loan sharking pretty much goes hand in hand, Bruno also began to lend Shylock money, which, of course, as you can imagine, enhanced his wealth exponentially. 
Over time, reports would indicate that he preferred only to deal in large amounts with big-time racketeers who had more income. Uh, he didn't want to waste his time on, you know, smaller deals uh, with smaller, you know, smaller hoods. Additionally, Bruno was said to have been bankrolling members of the Jewish mob, who even by that point were still somewhat of a force in the area, and who Bruno was very close with, specifically guys like, you know, William Willie Weisberg, Samuel Hoffman, and Alvin Feldman. Uh, and we saw Weisberg and Hoffman come up, of course, you know, making comments related to the Kennedys in the last episode. Now, because he was very shrewd, Angelo Bruno was also smart enough at the time to invest his illicit profits in legitimate businesses, which could then be used as fronts to launder his money, keep his money secret from law enforcement, right? This allowed him to hide his money and helped him really largely avoid significant legal issues for much of the late 1940s and early 1950s. He was able to pretty much stay off the radar except, you know, a few pinches here and there. Bruno would invest uh, in a lot of businesses, including the Atlas Sanitation and Extermination Company based in Trenton, New Jersey, with his cousin, Johnny Keyes Simone, uh, who was an up-and-coming power in his own right by that point. And Bruno's son, Michael, would also operate the Globe Sanitation Company at 810 Snyder Avenue in Philadelphia. Additionally, Bruno around this time was also noted to be getting his hooks into Philadelphia City Councilman Paul D'Ortona to receive a contract with the city to remove trash by means of water transportation. Interesting way to, to remove trash for sure and very Tony Soprano-esque if you ask me. I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. To further his legitimate interests and to further hide his income, Angelo would also allegedly have a desk job at the Maggio Cheese Company, which was originally owned by longtime underworld powerhouse Michael Maggio, who was in fact Bruno's sponsor for membership into the organization. But at this time, by this point in time when he becomes boss, it was owned by Maggio's sons, Mario, Peter, and Salvatore. According to reports, Bruno and the Maggios were thick, meaning friendly, thick as thieves. And if you can remember from the first episode, they were in fact related by marriage. Informants would suggest that Bruno at this time frequently used Maggio Cheese Company as his headquarters where he'd run his numbers operation. And for protection, there was usually someone at the factory on a 24-hour basis, though in Weirdly enough, the office somehow appeared to have been wiretapped, so the law enforcement officials were able to get through that little protection net and, you know, listen in on a lot of the conversations that were happening there. And also, I'm just going to point out, cheese, for whatever reason, seems to have been a, a big thing. I can think of at least three cheese-related companies when you think of what's going on in Philadelphia the Cerritos in San Jose, uh, and also Denver. I seem to have really focused in on the families, uh, and not Denver specifically, I mean Pueblo uh, and Arizona with Joe Bonanno, all in the cheese business. Pretty crazy. Bruno would also frequently meet with his criminal associates and the entire Philadelphia hierarchy at various points in the rear office of a building on 775 South 8th Street, which appears to have also been wiretapped at some point in 1985. So uh, a lot of those secret conversations were not secret uh, to the FBI. 
Angelo Bruno would go on to invest in many other businesses and didn't limit himself to just the Philadelphia area. He had a business selling glass shower doors down in Hialeah, Florida, a cigarette vending machine service in his wife's name called the Penn Jersey Vending Company, which he had sold by this time to a man named Dominic Katz, and several other vending companies, including the Garden State Vending Company with a man named Ben Galoob, who also came up in the, in the Kennedy episode, the P&J Vending Company with Charles Pinky Costello, and the Philadelphia, New Jersey Express Company. So he was big also into vending. In addition to all of those business interests, Bruno owned real estate in many places, supposedly even with Carlo Gambino, though I couldn't find any documentation to tie those two together in real estate. And Bruno even held a piece of the San Suchi and or the Hotel Plaza Casino down in Havana, Cuba, which, of course, uh, you know, that was before Fidel Castro ultimately took over. Now, his wife, Sue, would later claim that he'd been able somehow to get his money out of Cuba, allegedly about a $180,000 investment, which at that time was a hell of a lot of money, before that money was able to be seized by the new Castro government. By the early 1960s, Bruno would also be a principal investor in another overseas venture, this was not one I expected. Uh, this time, the Coney Island Amusement Park down in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic of all places. He was said to have a piece of the amusement park along with a man named Bernard Bucky Allen. Sounds like the, the, the Flash, right? Uh, as well as others, including Joseph Schesser. Norman Fromkin and Ben Galoob, the aforementioned Ben Galoob. Uh, and all of the reports I read, for whatever reason, seemed to indicate that these, these men were at each other's throats and Bruno more often than not served as mediator. And the other thing I thought, it's, it's really random for him to have a piece in an amusement park in, you know, in South America. And to me, I'm not going to say anything. I didn't find any reports that indicate this, but... Uh, well, South America has a lot of drugs, right? So maybe that was a, a drug connection. We know Carlo, uh, even despite you know what he said uh, and the edict that he put out, uh, maybe even had some South American connections in the same way. Uh, I've seen um, some other shows point that out. So just speculating there, no hard facts, just speculating. Now, I would even find a report that Bruno at some point, though the exact timing was a little un unclear, at some point in the 1960s, had developed a hidden interest in the Victoria Sporting Club, which operated as a gambling casino all the way in good old London, England. So uh, Bruno was international, uh, very, very powerful. Uh, and this happens in the 1960s, so I'm jumping all around from a timeline standpoint. Uh, and then, of course, in the early 1950s, he was officially made into the family, which then had the effect of bolstering all of the businesses that he was getting into and, you know, introducing many new opportunities to him. And he was incredibly popular. He had relationships all over the country, internationally. He had a really important relationship, of course, with Carlo Gambino in New York, which is pretty much what got him, in my opinion, the boss's chair in Philadelphia. And it's really the thing that helped to position him to take that top seat, despite not having been a member for very long at that point. I think he was a member for maybe five, six, seven years, which was definitely looked down upon from other long-term members. 
His arrest record to this point in his career would date back to 1928 with arrests all the way up to 1956 by this point. These arrests included violations of the Pennsylvania State Liquor Control Act, the Whitkin Firearms Act, unlawful lottery, receiving stolen goods, and even common gambling. And although he was never arrested for anything violent, there are reports that he was involved personally as the shooter in multiple homicides, and we were able to dig up, no pun intended, at least two killings linked to Bruno, though I think that there were uh, several more that I've read about. Uh, and those two killings that we talked about in the intro episode for Bruno were the hits on a man named Marshall Veneziale in 1954 and another killing of a man named Alphonse Lenato in 1957, uh, just two years before he became boss, he's still pulling the trigger. Some sources would suggest that Bruno was allegedly personally involved as the trigger puller in as, uh, as many as six or seven more slayings before becoming boss. So, you know, he knew how to do the work. He, he definitely knew how. People don't tend to associate Bruno's name with heavy work, but I can promise you he had no qualms about pulling the trigger himself or ordering executions. But when it came to his management style as boss, I think you'll see, he seemed to be a mostly fair and pragmatic leader who more often than not prioritized making money over dispensing violence. And not only that, you could talk to him, you could reason with him, hell, I even found reports of some of his underlings arguing with him, which in other families with other bosses would get you killed immediately. Uh, but Bruno was, you know, he, he would set aside the violence and use it only when necessary. So you get the point, right? Bruno was an earner, a big earner, with ventures and relationships nationally and internationally, and he was at one point a hitter. He was generally popular at that point in time, you know, especially in the late 50s, early 60s, he was pretty popular. He had charisma and leadership ability, and now he was in the captain's chair, so to speak, in the Philly mob. In fact, in a, a very funny anecdotal note I saw, which has an element of pop culture, on August 6th, 1959, an informant, PHT8, advised FBI Special Agent Robert W. Holmes that Angelo Bruno had been traveling between Philadelphia and Atlantic City and had recently had a large group at the 500 Club in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where none other than Frank Sinatra was appearing. The informant noted, and this is the really funny part, that Angelo Bruno became roaring drunk at the party. <laughs> Uh, so the man was not afraid to let loose with the boys, so to speak, and at least for one night was kind of a party animal, roaring drunk, and I think we've all, we've all been there. So to get back to the chronological timeline, here we are in the early 1960s. The local media does not appear to have been aware that there has been a, a leadership change in the Philadelphia LCN, despite the fact that Bruno had been a known underworld figure for years by this point, for at least a decade, uh, maybe more by this point. However, due to the efforts of the Kennedy brothers, along with some very willing informants pointing them in that direction, which I recently covered, the FBI was hard at work building a large dossier on mobsters around the country, Bruno included. By July 13th of 1962, the FBI pretty much knew that he'd taken over leadership with the family, and not only that, but that he sat on the commission. So 
they, being the authorities, pretty much had him and the entire Philadelphia organization by this point pegged with respect to the quality of their information and the ac accuracy. The report, which was talking about the structure of the organization, noted the following. Quote, for the information of Legat Rome, Angelo Bruno, Philadelphia Hoodlum, is the representando officiali of the commission, reputed ruling body of the United States Italian underworld, which body controls the legal and illegal activities of its society, members from New York City. The commission's directives are executed through area representatives who are assigned territories. Bruno serves in this capacity. Its members of standing in conversation with each other have referred to themselves as belonging to La Cosa Nostra, end quote. Now, it is worth noting, and I had a quote in the Kennedy episode that leaned this way, too, that the FBI in the early 60s regularly referred to the LCN incorrectly, calling it La Cosa Nostra instead of just Cosa Nostra. So that wasn't just me mispronouncing uh, as I... I mispronounce a lot of things. That wasn't one of them. Uh, the FBI at the time, they legitimately were misunderstanding the reference, and they didn't really understand until Valachi would clarify it a short time later in terms of the actual wording, the actual meaning. The difference, I believe, is that the FBI believed the translation was our cause, uh, which is a little bit different. Uh, where in fact it really meant our thing to initiated members. And you can go to Google and take take La Cosa Nostra and Cosa Nostra, put them into the Italian to English translator. They will tell you there's a difference, and the FBI just failed to pick that up. Uh, it's splitting hairs, I know, but for those aspiring researchers, just know that it's not uncommon to see it called La Cosa Nostra in old FBI field reports and other documentation. Now, in my research, there were reports pretty much laying out not just who Angelo Bruno was at the present moment, but his entire personal and criminal history. It was almost like they were getting a major information download, like they had just been plugged into the Matrix, so to speak. The FBI was even going so far as talking to all of Bruno's known associates and even friends. They were traveling all over the country talking to uh, talking to friends, family, associates. There are reports with hundreds of pages long just laying out lists of people who were friendly with Bruno or, or who had known him at one time, and the FBI would travel literally as far as Florida to question them, asking things like, do you know Angelo Bruno? How do you know Angelo Bruno? How long have you known Angelo Bruno? Among other probing questions. And I can imagine that for people who were who were directly related with Bruno or even on the periphery, knowing who he was, this was probably mildly, mildly, or more than mildly concerning. Now, as noted above, uh, in addition to becoming the family boss, Angelo Bruno became the first boss of Philadelphia to have an official seat on the commission. This move would have the effect of swinging the balance of power away from the Genovese family and more towards the Gambino and Lucchese alliance within the national syndicate. It would give them, in effect, an extra, an extra vote to swing the majority in, in, in most decisions. Once the official representante, Bruno would name Joe Rugnetta, a highly, highly respected and longtime member of the family, as his consigliere, and would choose to keep Ignazio Denaro, the man who had gone to bat for him with the commission, during the Polina dispute as his underboss. 
Let me give you an idea of the size of the family he presided over around that time. Now, in total, the FBI had a record of 121 people being recognized as members of the Philadelphia organization at one point in time or another from the 60s throughout the entire history. 82 of which at that time were still living and 39 deceased. So 82 members still living at that point in time when Bruno takes over. Now, again, this is just a moment in time, but it gives you an idea of the relative size of the family in comparison to the New York families, which are more often than not reputed to have 150 to 250 members uh, within each family. In addition to the administration, Bruno was very close with the following people. Philip Testa, who by this point in the early 1960s was running his numbers business for him uh, and believed to be his chief lieutenant. He was kind of his right-hand man. Uh, the aforementioned Maggio brothers, Peter, Mario, and Salvatore. Carl Pappi Ippolito, who'd invested in Cuba with him. He was very close to, uh, to Pappi. His cousin, John Johnny Keys Simone, John Casablanca. Another distant cousin, Charles Pinky Costello, for whom he was the best man at the wedding. Of course, portrayed in The Irishman, Felix Skinny Razor de Tullio out in Atlantic City and also sometimes in Philadelphia, who was noted in one report as being kill crazy. I've got to look into that a little bit more. I want to I want to do an episode on Skinny Razor, but I guess that makes sense, right? He's the one that mentored Nicodemo, little Nicky Scarfo. So it doesn't surprise me that little Nicky's mentor was called literally kill crazy. <laughs> Uh, Alfred Freddy Ietzi, who it was reported that Bruno had often taken him into his confidence with sensitive information. So very close ally. And of course, also portrayed in The Irishman, the boss of Northeastern Pennsylvania, Russell Buffalino, among many other people that Bruno had relationships with. This guy had a lot of relationships. He knew how to make connections and he knew the value of friends. Now, these were the men who'd formed his sort of inner circle at this time and helped him to really solidify his power base in addition to his friendships within other families with the likes of Carlo Gambino, probably his most important friendship in Tommy Lucchese in New York. And he even had a relationship, of course, with Santo Traficante down in Florida. Lots of reports of Bruno frequently in Florida. And for him to be in Florida, you got to have a, a relationship with the Traficantes. Now, by this point, you'd think Bruno would be riding high. Uh, you really would. But informants and even a 1966 FBI dossier would state that he had many health issues and at the time was suffering from ulcers. He had a sinus operation as well. And like I just said, he'd been making frequent trips to Florida. Now, the popular thought at the time was that his personal health issues might even take him out of the action before any of his enemies could. So there were thoughts, even in the 60s, even when he had just taken over, that his health was bad enough that that would take him out of action. Bruno was reputed to have been uh, actually even considering retirement to Miami, stepping down and leaving the life. And there are records indicating uh, especially when the heat gets dialed up, which we'll talk about in a minute, that Bruno openly admitted this fact, uh, and even in the 1950s, there are reports that lean this way, that he had uh, you know, con considered retirement and even gone so far as to suggest it to you know, other mobsters, including uh, the well-known Gerard Jerry Catina of the Genovese family. 
Now, getting back to the chronological timeline, on February 14th, 1961, Bruno was arrested in a raid on his home on Snyder Avenue, and though the paper would splash a dramatic popcorn headline along with a mugshot in the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, as you'll see, they truly had nothing. However, as you'll see in the future, this case would eventually come back to bite Bruno right in the ass. Quote, Dangerous drugs found in South Philadelphia raid. Captain Clarence J. Ferguson's Special Investigation Squad had its eye on Angelo Bruno for three months. Finally, the time came to close in. Ferguson hoped to find evidence connecting Bruno, 50, with the operation of an illegal lottery. Instead, he found in a second-floor bedroom of Bruno's home on Snyder Avenue near 10th Street a carton containing 10 tin cans. In each can were 20 white wafers. On the outside of each can was this lettering and warning, E-X-U-L, dangerous drugs, not to be sold without a prescription. Ferguson said there were no doctor's labels on the cans to indicate that Bruno had a prescription. Bruno said the pills were for his ulcers and that he got them in Florida. He was charged with illegal possession of dangerous drugs. Looking further, Ferguson and his raiders found 50 slips of paper with names and notations complete with dollar signs. Ferguson did some quick calculating and came up with a total of $600,000 to $700,000 in some kind of business. Bruno said the slips of paper were records of his vending business. In that case, Ferguson said he wouldn't mind having the Internal Revenue Service look at the records. The Internal Revenue Service came around with subpoenas, picked up the records, and now is looking closely. When Ferguson, Sergeant William Downs, and Patrolman Anthony Cristelli, Edward Kelly, and Lawrence Thomas arrived on the scene, Bruno wasn't home. His wife, Sue, made a telephone call and Angelo came running. He was carrying $1,686 in cash. Ferguson confiscated that, too. But Bruno got it back today after Magistrate George Levin freed him. End quote. Bruno was cleared the next day with local papers saying that Angelo Bruno's ability to avoid the shadow of prison bars has stood him in good stead for the ninth time in 32 years. And when the incident was all said and done, and again, that's debatable as to when it was said and done, I just want to point out that the fact that the police supposedly sat on Bruno for three months and when they chose their moment to strike, the best they got were some pills? for ulcers? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. Now, talk about embarrassing. And if I'm the FBI or any other local authorities who weren't on the Bruno family payroll, I'd have to seriously question the Keystone Cops operation they had running at the time. Uh, so I guess it just goes to show that Bruno was smart at keeping his family's business private, despite being surveilled quite a lot in the early 1960s and even uh, you know, being wiretapped. In my opinion, that arrest and subsequent release was just a case in point with how locked down and on top of things Bruno was in the early 1960s. Sure, he was an LCN boss, but good luck catching him with more than just prescription pills. But that was the genius of the original Cosa Nostra setup, the insulation. And of course, we know Bruno was doing more with his new status, up to and including ordering violence and securing political connections to further build upon his power base. And the, the power of the family takes off at this point. It really explodes uh, and expands significantly under Bruno. 
But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, right? Now, it's around this time in the spring of 1962 that Bruno allegedly began to have an issue with his underboss, Ignazio Denaro. Although things generally ran smooth in this area, this would become an increasing trend over the course of Bruno's reign. As I reported in part one, Angelo would encounter some friction after taking over as boss, according to a 1966 Criminal Intelligence Digest put out to FBI field offices chronicling his rise. The report would read, quote, As might be guessed from Bruno's remarks, his main conflicts since his promotion have been internal rather than external. To begin with, Angelo is Sicilian, and though he boasts that he does not judge a man by the province of his birth, a number of sources have advised that the Calabrians have been conspiring for years to overthrow the Sigis in the Philadelphia hierarchy and oust Bruno from power. Another major cause of dissension at first was Angelo's youth and his relatively brief membership in La Cosa Nostra at the time of his election to the commission. When resentment began to reach a dangerous stage during the early part of 1962, Bruno called a meeting of the older members of the organization and warned them that if they continued to resist his administration, then they had better not come to him for help later in a time of need. The biggest difficulty, however, is the allegation that Bruno is a tightwad and that having made his own fortune, he no longer cares about the welfare of those under him. Partly because of this and partly because of Angelo's tendency to use his friend Phil Testa as a confidant and an informal aide-de-camp, he has completely alienated his underboss, the man who made his rise to power possible by denouncing Polina in 1960. End quote. I know I shared this excerpt in the first episode, but wow, that passage is prophetic. And though Bruno can now, in 2023, probably be considered the best boss in the city's history, the cracks in the foundation that would play themselves out less than 20 years later were already starting to show and dated all the way back to his coronation as boss. And speaking of the issue with his underboss, Ignacio Denaro, in May of 1962, ignoring the established chain of command as well as commission rules, Denaro went to the commission in New York behind Bruno's back to have a sit-down where he'd lodge a formal complaint against his boss and allegedly attempted to have him removed. Apparently, Denaro was very unhappy. He wanted to cut himself in on the profits of, uh, of, a, of a game, a specific card game, and was so miffed that he actually went to the commission to lodge a complaint about Bruno. Bruno and Denaro also had had a fairly loud public argument around this time, which was likely around this specific subject. Again, I said, in other families, you have an argument with the boss, you get killed. With Bruno... You could talk to him and even argue with him and not get killed, but this was coming to a boiling point. Denaro would speak to Carlo Gambino and another person named Joe, which could have been either Joe Bonanno, Joe Colombo, or Joe Magliocco, didn't specify, about cutting himself in on said card game. Now, imagine, I'm just going to pause, imagine going to, to the commission over a single card game? Like, really? That's what you're doing? Pretty petty stuff and... and their position probably was like, dude, go figure it out. And in keeping with the rules of the operation, Dinaro was advised, as I just said, return to Philadelphia, sit down with Bruno and resolve your differences. It's like being a parent, right? You tell your kids, I don't want to hear about this. 
You figure it out with your siblings. Don't bring this to me. Go figure it out. Let me know how it turns out. And as you would expect, this sort of backdooring of his authority would greatly upset Bruno. It, it pissed him off. Of course it would. Months after the dispute between Bruno and Denaro, it's alleged that Bruno related the following information to an informant dubbed T5. Quote, Bruno stated that as soon as Denaro went to New York, he, Bruno, was contacted and advised. Bruno stated that Denaro was the sorriest man that ever did what he did, that is, going to the commission. Bruno stated that he, Denaro, was told by Carlo Gambino, I want you to know that Angelo is with me even if he is not here. He is sitting right there just the same, just like we represent Angelo. This statement was interpreted by informant to mean that Gambino respects Bruno as an equal because Bruno, too, is a member of the commission. End quote. Now that's power, and that's the value of having such a friendship in this life, one that would be the linchpin of Bruno's authority in the underworld for years to come. The two men, through their friendship, would use each other, in a way, to uh, propel themselves forward over the years. I think Bruno needed Gambino more, but Gambino, of course, was playing the big role on the commission and needed Bruno's vote, too. So it was a, a very much a symbiotic relationship. Now, Denaro would stay on as underboss for the time being, but that's the kind of thing that really sours the relationship, right? You go to you go to my bosses behind my back and lodge a complaint. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to trust you going forward. And in actuality, Testa would be sort of minding the store when, when Bruno was out of town, uh, which again, that pissed Denaro off. Uh, but it is what it is. And to illustrate Bruno's thinking regarding Philadelphia's relationship with the commission, just before all this backbiting was to take place, he would allegedly relate the following in February of 1962 to another informant. Quote, we respect the commission. Do you understand? And we couldn't do nothing without New York. End quote. Now, despite all of this, Bruno would still generally be considered as fairly popular, especially due to his relations over the years with the local police and the Jewish mob in the area. As boss, Bruno was reputed to have been well regarded also by his fellow commission members. However, I wouldn't get it twisted, Bruno, despite his probably unwarranted reputation as being docile, was anything but. I've said this a couple of times now. According to a 1966 Criminal Intelligence Digest put out to FBI field offices, Bruno was caught in a conversation during the early 1960s showing his more brutal side. Quote, During the course of a recent conversation, Bruno tried to stress his new image by stating that he did not necessarily want to hurt people. But the professional gunman of his youth slipped out when he added that if a situation developed whereby it became essential to kill someone, he would know what to do about it and would make the final decision. Apparently, calling upon his experience as the leading suspect in four murders between 1948 and 1957, he then derided the bravado of anyone who was enough of a sucker to warn a potential victim ahead of time that he was going to be hurt or killed. End quote. Pretty chilling stuff, right? Speaking of Gambino, the first note I really came across connecting both Bruno and Gambino together in any way came from a 1962 FBI field report. In the report, which again provided a large dossier of information on Angelo Bruno, they mentioned a man named Calogero Sinatra, famous name, right? 
who was allegedly, that being Sinatra, the cousin of Bruno, and allegedly also would become a boss in the Sicilian Mafia based in uh, Caltanissetta, Sicily. While this certainly isn't the most important report in this video, in this uh, episode, I felt it was interesting enough to include as it shows both Bruno and Gambino's connections to Sicily. Quote, Calogero Sinatra, Italian national, passport number 87091167, cousin of Angelo Bruno. During May 1962, PHT3 advised that he was told that Bruno was expecting a visitor that the visitor who was not identified would be readily recognized by Pat Massey and that it was Bruno's intentions that Pat Massey and Peter Maggio would meet this visitor who was apparently coming from outside the continental United States. PHT1 advised also in May 1962 that Pat Massey, an associate of Angelo Bruno, told him that he had had a discussion that day with Pat Massey regarding Bruno's visitor, who was coming from Italy, who was identified as Calogero Sinatra and was going to arrive in New York via air. Bruno said that Sinatra may want to say hello to Paul, not further identified, and Gambino while Sinatra was in New York, that Sinatra wanted to visit Buffalo and Chicago. Sinatra was described as being 42 or 43 years of age. PHT2 on January 19, 1962, reported that Peter Maggio was active in furnishing documents to admit Calogero Sinatra to the United States on a visitor's visa. Information pertaining to the same is set forth under the name Peter J. Maggio in this report. End quote. Skipping past some heavily redacted and kind of hard to read portions of the report, uh, the report goes on to say the following. Quote, the New York office advised on June 16, 1962, that Bruno and Paul Gambino, the latter of New York City, met Sinatra on his arrival in New York on June 16, 1962. On June 17, 1962, Peter Maggio was observed by Special Agent Joseph A. Verica driving Calogero Sinatra and Angelo Bruno with Bruno's wife Sue as a passenger in Philadelphia. It is to be noted that Special Agents Edward D. Hegarty, David W. Breen, and Joseph A. Varica on June 26, 1962, saw Peter Maggio arrive at the Immigration and Naturalization Service Office in Philadelphia with Sinatra for the purpose of having Sinatra interviewed by Immigration and Nationalization Service agents that date. Photographs of Sinatra and Peter Maggio walking together were obtained by Special Agent Hegarty on this date. PHT5 identified Sinatra as an amico nostro, which is known to this source as a name applying to members of the organized Italian underworld. It is to be noted that Angelo Bruno and Paul Gambino, along with others, met Sinatra on his arrival at Idlewild Airport, New York, on June 16, 1962, and observed by agents of the FBI. Further, Paul Gambino is the brother of Carlo Gambino, previously identified as a member of the organization. End quote. Again, not a particularly important report, but interesting for sure, and it makes the connection between Bruno Gambino and also the Sicilian Mafia. I would find other reports from 1962 indicating that Bruno would also meet directly with Gambino all the way down at the Golden Gate Hotel in Miami, Florida, and again the same day, coincidentally my birthday, driving around Hallandale, Florida. 
again, interesting as when you think of Gambino, you tend to think of him as very much staying low key and staying up in New York City. But this report does tend to indicate that he did move around at least a little bit and to have been a fly on the wall in that car would have been very, very interesting, I'm sure. Speaking of other interesting reports uh, from right around this time, I also came across another very interesting note dating to February and May of 1962, indicating that Bruno was working with a man named Frank Palermo to negotiate with boxing manager, get this, George Katz, who had a 10% interest in a local boxer, just some local kid, none other than Charles Sonny Liston. Just a local kid, right? <laughs> Now, when I first read the note, I thought that Bruno was trying to get a piece of Liston himself, but it appears that Bruno was actually trying to help Katz get at least 10%, but maybe as much as a 13% stake in the fighter Liston. Additionally, Bruno, who was good friends with a man named Samuel Margolis, who had an interest in Liston over the years and who owned, according to his own testimony, 25% of the company that promoted Liston's fights, including the, the legendary fight with one Cassius Clay. So he was friends with all the players around Liston. And of course, we know that Liston was long connected to the mob. Uh, many people think he took a dive for the mob in the Clay fight. So finding this note actually didn't surprise me that much. But because of how famous Liston was, I had to share the note for all the boxing fans out there. Really cool to come across this in FBI documentation when I really wasn't looking for it. To take this a step further, there were some reports indicating that Bruno was not very happy with Liston, in which he used fairly derogatory language and really wanted Liston to stop communicating with cats via phones. And there's even a reference that uh, I didn't 100% understand, but it's a chilling reference about killing people and having to know how to do it right if he's going to do it. So that kind of puts Liston on blast as maybe having killed somebody or cats or somebody. Uh, it was hard to understand, but definitely a reference to killing people. It was fascinating, to be honest, but I decided to kind of pull myself out of that particular rabbit hole, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, there was even a story with an extensive transcript that might warrant its own episode. I actually think it does. Uh, it's that interesting, where Bruno, allegedly in late 1962 at a wedding in Trenton, New Jersey, of all places, seized the opportunity and made four members into his family right at the wedding in hopes of actually spinning up a new regime in either Trenton or Newark. So saw an opportunity, made four members of his family right there. First, this will give you an idea of how shrewd Bruno was. And second, it will go to show that maybe the books weren't truly closed when it came to inducting new members although the books were supposedly closed from 57 to around 1976 or 77, at least in New York. Uh, but I've seen now many cases of people getting made uh, in between when the books were supposed to have been closed. Here's a completely out of context note from the transcript, which is absolutely going to be made into an episode, like I said, at a later date because of how obviously fascinating it is. It's really, really interesting. The initials in the conversation below refer to Angelo Bruno as AB, and associate named Frank Nicoletti as FN, and an associate named Mike uh, uh, as M. Mike, you used his brother-in-law, Angelo Bruno. Yeah, it was a Saturday or Sunday. That is the night that we 
interrupted. Mike, when we went to Trenton, Angelo Bruno, yeah, when we made those kids, you know, the two of them over there, because I used them to those two fellows, you remember, I used that crew, one, two, three. Mike, yeah. Frank Nicoletti, yeah. Mike, his brother-in-law was in jail. Angelo Bruno, no, he wasn't in yet. It was the night that we made, we made somebody else too that night. Frank Nicoletti, we made four of these kids, Charlie's kid, Angelo Bruno, and Sam, Sam from Chester, see, so that night, when he saw it, see, nobody knew nothing, nobody. They did not know that anything was going to happen that night, not even Nats, Ignatius DeNaro, not even Joe, Joseph Rugnetta, because we were going to do it like a week later, understand? So nobody knew what I had in mind. I figure that if I get a chance that night when somebody is there, I'll do it. So when I saw the situation and everybody was there, Mike... That was real good. Angelo Bruno. So the first thing I did, I called Joe. So I told Joe and Nats at the wedding, I called him in the other room and told him that it was a good chance now instead of worrying about it. Instead of doing it next week or the week after, we can do it now and nobody knows nothing. So right away we start calling the Cappies in. But we did not tell them nothing. We just told them, whoever you came with, go there. Whoever you came with, go there. So now all these kids were there. Sam wasn't there. I made sure Sam was there. I told him to bring Sam, you see. He gets to know everybody, but he did not tell anybody what I had in mind. He made sure that Charlie's kid was there, and I made sure that Tony brought those other two guys. I figured that if I get a chance, I'm going to do it tonight. Now Tony, when he sees who is there, knows what is going to happen. Now his brother-in-law is going to the can on Monday, a week from then. Mike, it was on a Sunday, Angelo Bruno. He was sentenced to five years, but I got it out to four years. I got a year taken off. So Tony gets me on the side. He says, Ange, it would be good if we made my brother-in-law. Mike, he said that? Angelo Bruno, yeah. Mike, then he changed his mind? Angelo Bruno, he said it would be good if we made my brother-in-law too. I said, Tony, I have been after you for so long. Now it is impossible. Number one, your brother-in-law ain't here. Number two, he is not proposed. Had we proposed him, I said, so where is he? In Newark. So it takes 45 minutes to get there. So we could send a car up and bring him in, but he's not proposed. So I said, before you make anybody, he has got to be proposed. I says, you can't propose him now and make him on Monday or Tuesday. He says, because when he is proposed, the family has got a right to know if anybody has anything to say. He said, you wanted to do it. It is a shame being that he's going to Atlanta and there's Pete over there. There's Vito over there. I figured that it would be nice, but it was impossible. He thought of it too late. Mike, it is a shame, but there was nothing that you could do. The above clearly shows that Angelo Bruno assembled a group of Amiki Nostri of the Philadelphia family of La Cosa Nostra for the purpose of making an additional four members of the Philadelphia family. References to Tony and his brother-in-law are at this time not meaningful to Philadelphia. The wedding at which the new members were made took place in Trenton, New Jersey. End quote. And I'll just say, sometimes when you're doing research, there's just so much information that you're inundated with that it can be really hard to parse out what's relevant for, for videos like these versus what's overkill. I probably err on the side of 
overkill beating you over the head with paperwork. <laughs> and for that, I apologize. I think maybe some people just want me to, to cut through all the bullshit and give them the high level synopsis. I'm not very good at that. Uh, but again, I just wanted to say that I thought this was a good story. So I included it. It does warrant its own episode. Now, I know that I tend to go much further than most channels with the details, but believe me when I tell you there is a lot that I I actually do choose to leave some information out, probably right or wrong. And in this case, I chose to pull it in because of how it showed uh, Bruno's style of operation. I mean, have you really ever heard of a family making guys at a wedding? I, I know I haven't, but it, it appears to have happened. But then again, on the flip side, despite being commonly surveilled, the FBI is not likely to try to wiretap a wedding, at least at that time. People were not wearing wires, probably, although they had informants. People weren't yet being, you know, wired up. Law enforcement is not allowed in. They're not going to go into a wedding. And who's going to notice guys stepping away here or there to do the ceremony? And not only that, but if you're a guest at this wedding, who would tell even if they knew something was up? So fairly shrewd on Bruno's part, he picked his spot. Anyhow, as 1962 ends, Bruno was about to find himself in the middle of what I'd call his most tumultuous year within the decade of the 1960s, and law enforcement would come very close to nailing him. In 1963, the underworld would be turned upside down as the Kennedy administration, and particularly Bobby Kennedy, was by this point launching a full-court press on the Mafia. With arrests skyrocketing and several intra-family wars happening in New York around this time, it was most certainly not an easy time to have been a boss and a member of the National Commission. And for the Philadelphia mob, and Angelo Bruno in particular, 1963 would be a year that would take him nearly to the brink. Things for Bruno and the rest of the Mafia would really start to heat up when a now well-known mafiosi, uh, wasn't well-known in his own time until this point, named Joseph Giocargo Valachi, formerly a soldier in the Genovese family of New York, began cooperating and revealing information not just about the five families of New York City, but about the entire organization nationally, including Angelo Bruno's status as the Don of Philadelphia. On Tuesday, August 5th, after finding out that Balaji had indeed flipped, the Justice Department had gotten word that the commission, Bruno included, had not only uh, been named by Balaji, but had put out a $100,000 bounty, close to $1 million in today's money, on his head. This news, which couldn't have been unexpected, led authorities to take extraordinary steps to hide and protect their star informant so that he could continue to feed them information, ultimately culminating in the Valachi hearings, which are also referred to as the McClellan hearings in October of 1963. These hearings would shine a major light on the Mafia to the world at large and would be very damaging to the organization in terms of the bad publicity. In the reports that would come out revealing the $100,000 contract, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Howard R. Leary would comment on Valachi's accusations against Bruno, saying the following, quote, He is one of the principal heads of the rackets here. 
He's also a very shrewd leader and he has great influence beyond the confines of the state of Pennsylvania." End quote. Captain Clarence J. Ferguson, the man who tried to tie the bogus drug case to Bruno in 1961, would agree with his boss that Bruno is, quote, the head man in the rackets here. Police are having a tough time linking him with the rackets, end quote. As a result of Valachi's testimony, Bruno and other mobsters were about to have a lot more law enforcement scrutiny coming their way. Just three days after the news of the $100,000 contract, a report broke in the Philadelphia Inquirer indicating that the Justice Department, on orders from Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, was preparing to indict Bruno as well as his wife on charges of income tax evasion. As we know, that charge was pretty much what ended the career of the great Al Capone, and it's pretty much what they had to do back then when they couldn't really nab you for anything else. They follow the money. This information came to law enforcement's attention as a result of the information obtained during the 1961 raid on his home, so apparently it wasn't a complete failure, so to speak. News of the pending bus led Police Commissioner Leary to comment that the heat is on, we are going after them, even going so far as to call it Operation Bruno. And the heat would be ratcheted up almost immediately as just one day after the tax evasion report broke, news would also break about the Philadelphia organization's involvement in the murder of two local hoods who'd been informants regarding an infamous heist that took place in Pottsville, PA in the early 1960s. This was really the first murder I saw linked to Bruno during his time as boss, and it does bear all of the hallmarks of mob retribution. Now, again, in this episode, I'm not going to cover the murders and a lot of the violence. We'll do a separate episode on that because I do think it warrants its own episode, which will be pretty gruesome. Uh, but this one we will cover. Quote, heist slang linked to crime syndicate. Did the stool pigeon who cracked open the Pottsville heist fall victim to the brutal code of the infamous Cosa Nostra National Crime Syndicate? There's no question of it, Captain Clarence J. Ferguson flatly stated. Richie Blaney, whose tattling resulted in the arrest of six persons for the $478,000 burglary, was murdered because he violated the code of Omerto, silence or death, said Ferguson. Blaney was blasted into eternity on July 27, 1961, when he stepped on the starter of his car parked in front of his northeast Philadelphia home. The killers have never been captured. This was a syndicate killing, said Ferguson. There were gang killings like that in Chicago, New York, Ohio, and Florida, but never here. The syndicate is currently being exposed as Cosa Nostra, our thing by FBI canary Joseph Bellacci. Bellacci has identified South Philadelphian Angelo Bruno as the local leader of the crime combine. Bruno, 53-year-old vending machine operator, was questioned about three gangland slayings in the early 1950s but was released each time. He has been arrested nine times and convicted twice, never serving a day in prison. Agents of the Internal Revenue Service are reportedly preparing to indict Bruno and his wife, Sue, for income tax evasion. They live in a modest row home on Snyder Avenue near 9th Street and show no evidence of great wealth. Blaney blew the whistle on the big hall from Pottsville home of coal magnate John B. Rich, ni Giovanni Battista Rescioni, and Blaney's own brother, Vincent, was pinched as part of the burglary gang. 
Vincent, who cooperated with police, was fished from the Atlantic Ocean with a bullet hole in his skull on August 22, 1960. Among those arrested was handsome, smooth-talking John Burkery, and Ferguson feels there is a link between Bruno and Burkery. The others nabbed for the caper were curvy Lil Reese, sometime nightery operator, and her good friend Ralph Jr. Stano. Robert Polson, who was shot and seriously wounded when he got too chummy with the cops, and Clyde Bing Miller, the alleged finger man who placed the X on Rich's antiquated safe. Burkery is close to Skinny Razor, and Skinny is Bruno's top lieutenant, said Ferguson. Skinny was described as a well-known racketeer with a long record in Philadelphia and South Jersey. Burkery and his brother Edward were questioned at length by homicide detectives, as was Lil, but all were released. The homicide squad has shown no inclination to interrogate either Bruno or Skinny Razor about Blaney's death. End quote. Nothing would actually happen as a result of these murders, and I'll, like I said, I'll cover this case in more depth in the Hits episode, but you're going to see a theme in 1963. It's a very bad year to be the top guy in the Philadelphia LCN. News in August of 1963 would continue to be hot and heavy as the authorities were leaking out information to local law enforcement and newspapers regarding some of their findings in an effort to put pressure on the syndicate ahead of Valachi's public testimony. And what I, uh, what I really mean is the FBI's leaking information to local law enforcement, which is leaking information to the papers, which is leaking it out to the public to drum up interest in the testimony. There were stories about every day with Bruno's name in them. A robust dossier was being compiled at the time about every single family in Cosa Nostra, and there were large amounts of very, very interesting information being reported in papers, some of which was pretty accurate, while some of the others, not so much. For example, in Philadelphia, it was reported that the numbers racket was the group's number one source of income, taking in multi-millions of dollars each year, followed by other traditional rackets, including gambling and shylocking. So pretty, pretty accurate. Though the paper was mostly right in saying that the mob had phased out bootlegging and had moved away from prostitution, it's worth noting that Bruno was still making money off of illegal hooch well into the late 1940s. It was dead wrong in the assertion that the mob had moved away from drugs. Now, again, I know Bruno was against drugs, but you're going to see as I go on, drugs become a big part of the picture and a big problem. And of course, there was the deal or die ban for public appearances, but many mobsters around the country were clearly, very clearly still partaking in drugs, either on the sneak or even more blatantly. Uh, go back to the Billy Bats episode, and you're going to see some big players in the mafia, pretty well-known guys, caught dealing drugs. Nothing happened to them. And it's one of the enduring myths about the mafia. Police Commissioner Howard R. Leary would go on to testify in front of the McClellan Committee in September of 1963, putting the Philadelphia Mafia on blast. Continuing the publicity of 1963, the Philadelphia mob would be splashed all over the front pages of local papers with headlines like Cosa Nostra Cash Finances Crime in Philly, Philadelphia at usury rates with big, big giant pictures of Bruno and top lieutenants like Phil Testa and Felix Skinny Razor de Tullio and full page explanations of their exploits. This is not the, the pressure that you want, right? For mobsters who are looking to stay low key 
as a group generally, uh, this is not the publicity, not the type of spotlight you want. You do not want to see your picture and name plastered every single day on the front page, but it was. And it really goes to show how effective the efforts of law enforcement were in the early 1960s. Uh, very effective. What they were doing was indeed working, and as I said in the Kennedy episode, it was getting to the mob in a very serious way, and I'm just going to say it, they were on the ropes, for sure. Joe Valachi would finally take center stage in October of 1963, bearing all that he knew, not just about New York, but about other families, including Philadelphia. And while all the Valachi stuff is going on, right at the same time, authorities in Philadelphia, as noted above, were doing their best to take it to the Philadelphia mob. On October 11th, 1963, the police raided a million-dollar numbers operation and picked up three men, associates Frank Herbie Cologne, Andrew Cologne, and family soldier Frank Chicky Narducci, who later, of course, is a pretty infamous name. On the same day, it was announced that two police officials faced suspension and or dismissal in connection with payoffs related to gambling in South Philadelphia. And by this point, the Bruno organization, they were paying off a lot of police. There were a lot of guys on the payroll. Three weeks before the Narducci operation was raided, it appears that Bruno, along with seven others, was picked up and released after questioning. So constant pressure. As I said multiple times, this was not an easy period for the family, and as a result of the brewing shitstorm, Bruno would make the decision, because he knew something was coming, and I'm about to share what that something is, he would make the decision to go on the lamb, as things were not just warm, but were about to be scorching hot. Police inspector uh, Howard Gatter would indicate that Bruno had indeed fled, saying the following, quote, Bruno has definitely blown town. He's nowhere to be found, and the number one bank is passing the word they're out of business, taking nothing, end quote. So the tremendous law enforcement heat being applied had sent the hierarchy running for cover, and things would continue to just go from bad to worse as the Justice Department would issue a warrant for his arrest, that being Bruno, on October 20th, 1963, charging Bruno and several henchmen with interstate extortion and conspiracy. Now, as I said during the introduction of this episode, when people generally talk about Bruno, they tend to skip towards his becoming boss as well as towards the end of his reign. And in the 1960s, I think most people tend to believe it was all sunshine and rainbows in Philadelphia, and I'd have included myself in that discussion until doing the research for this episode, Clearly it wasn't. It was not an easy time to be the boss in Philly. As you get into late 1963, the situation in Philadelphia is kind of a mess. Uh, and when it rains, it pours. Uh, and ironically, this is all taking place, I just want to put it into context, roughly one month before the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Now, Back to the warrant, which was, in fact, a brand new set of charges separate from the raids in the few months prior. The two-part expose, which was splashed on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer, read as follows. Quote, FBI hunts Bruno, Philadelphia COSA chief, five henchmen seized. Bonds fixed at $25,000 to $100,000. 
A warrant for the arrest of Angelo Bruno, identified by Attorney General Robert Kennedy as the Philadelphia head of Cosa Nostra National Crime Syndicate, was issued Saturday night by the Justice Department. The warrant charged Bruno and five other suspected henchmen with interstate extortion and conspiracy. The accusations were based on threats against a group which purchased a Philadelphia building with a loan obtained at high interest in hopes of making a quick windfall. Suspects named. Four of the others, including one man from New York and two from New Jersey, were placed under arrest Saturday night. Bruno was still being sought by FBI agents. Also taken into custody and held as a material witness was Philip Testa, identified as a top lieutenant for Bruno. The extortion suspects held were identified in Washington by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover as Harold Konigsberg, 35, of Union Street, Lodi, New Jersey. He was arrested at his residence. Ignazio Denaro, 59, of South Uber Street, near Packer Street, Philadelphia. He was arrested at his place of business, Cafe Internazionale, 1824 South 3rd Street. Armand Colliani, 47, of Federal Street, near 7th, Philadelphia. He was arrested at his home. Joseph Robert Giuliano, 59, of Park Avenue, Nutley, New Jersey. He was arrested at his residence. Samuel James Roberts, 35, of 143 West 74th Street, New York City. He is being sought. In addition to Testa, who was picked up at his home on Carpenter Street near 10th, another Philadelphian sought as a material witness was Marvin Leonard Shivion, 38 of Chestnut Street near 60th, end quote. The article would go on to explain the various court proceedings and bail restrictions, and of course, the second part of the two-parter further detailed the situation and reasons for the warrant, which did indicate a certain degree of violence in the extortion. Quote, Shylock operation led to warrants for Cosa Nostra arrests. A Shylock operation led to the arrest warrants of Angelo Bruno, Philadelphia, Cosa Nostra, Don, and five others, the FBI said Saturday night. Harold Konigsberg, 35, of Lodi, New Jersey, one of the men seized, lent $13,500 to a Brumall man for use in a real estate speculation. The speculator, Joseph Zobad, purchased the West Philadelphia Jewish Community Center at Ludlow and 63rd Streets at a public auction June 24th with the hope of a quick resale and profit. The terms of Konigsberg's loan required weekly interest payments of $675 and payment in full of $25,500, the agents explained. Zobad failed to meet his payments, according to the FBI, was threatened, and in one case, an actual beating was administered with a lead-filled rubber hose. Six men were charged with conspiracy to violate a federal law which prohibits interstate travel to commit extortion. Bruno became involved, the FBI explained, when he tried to take over collection of the loan payments. He was miffed by the transaction, considering Konigsberg an intruder on his territory. The mechanics of the transaction were disclosed at a hearing late Saturday night before U.S. Commissioner Edward Furia in the federal courthouse 9th and Chestnut Streets, end quote. The article would go on to detail more information about the threats made by Konigsberg and his associates, as well as Bruno's displeasure with Konigsberg, an infamous Jewish hitman who had been doing Shylock deals in Philadelphia without letting Angelo Bruno know about it. So that's two-thirds of the Philadelphia hierarchy nailed in one fell swoop. 
the FBI in the following days after the warrants went out would make it very clear that they were not really interested in negotiating a surrender deal with Bruno, who was in the wind by this point and being actively hunted as a fugitive at large, though they believed he would immediately surrender himself, they believed that it was imminent, and were putting pressure on him publicly to do so. Now, this is, again, not something I'd have expected to find out about one of the country's most preeminent dons during what was supposed to have been the Golden Age, right? But alas, this whole thing did happen. And what's crazy about it is that it really wasn't Bruno at the heart of this particular extortion case. Really, Bruno was just defending his territory in the entire matter and got pulled in and just happened to be the biggest fish in the pond. All of this for just a rather inconsequential scheme just to make a, a quick buck. I'm sure he was pretty pretty pissed off about it uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know, looking looking back that he'd even gotten pulled in to this type of a this type of a thing. And of course, you know, law enforcement used it against him. Finally, the wiretaps from the Kennedy episode coming from the perspective of Madeline Costello, wife of Bruno Lieutenant Charles Pinky Costello, make a lot more sense. Although they were talking primarily about the Valachi hearings, Madeline's comments had to have been around this series of law enforcement efforts to nab Bruno as well. For those that didn't hear the Kennedy episode, she was recorded saying the following, quote, Madeline, I'll tell you the things they are doing to that man are awful, just terrible. Unknown male. They are crucifying him, Madeline. And for what? It's all a political thing, you know, end quote. Honestly, uh, when I first read the comments, though I thought they were interesting, I didn't understand really the full extent outside of the Valachi hearings, which all Cosa Nostra leaders at that time were going through. I thought it was sort of a shared sense of dread that they were that they were going through. It didn't really make complete sense to me why they were speaking and, and singling out Bruno in this way. However, once I started seeing case after case in late 1963, it really all started to click and it was like, oh, well, that makes more sense. <laughs> uh, things in 1963 were truly really circling the drain for Bruno and pretty quickly. Uh, and even before he was arrested, had a bail of $100,000, nearly $1 million in today's money, set despite never actually having done a day in prison to this point. Now, from an objective and not very novice legal perspective, the case here against Bruno did not appear to be very strong. But my impression was that once law enforcement had their hooks in him a little and then had Bruno now on the run... I think they decided it was really time to dig in. They even went so far, this was a stretch, so far as to proclaim that this case was expected to grow into an earthquake, that's a direct quote, that'll shake Cosa Nostra racket men out of their skins. That's what they were saying. Now, at this point, there are literally articles with Bruno on the front page uh, daily, pretty much daily in Philadelphia and elsewhere, including one on October 25th, 1963, entitled Cops Link Bruno to Mob Executions. Now, the funny thing is this article in this particular paper actually cites the same language I found from part one in the FBI field reports describing Bruno as a racket man who is, quote, alle alleged to have committed gangland executions in the past, right? So they were pretty much reading right from the field report. The article doesn't 
actually, and this is uh, pretty pretty annoying that a newspaper would do this um, at the time, but again, it was a mouthpiece for law enforcement at the time. The article does not actually specifically detail any murders that were alleged to have you know, been committed, and they don't name names. They don't talk about actual cases in the article. But by this point, like I said, the paper was a bit of a mouthpiece for the FBI and the local police and was really putting the heat on Bruno from a public sentiment standpoint to turn himself in. Despite the pressure, Bruno would continue to stay on the lam and his right-hand man, Phil Testa, as well as one of the other men picked up in the case, would stay true to Omerta and would keep their mouths shut with Testa going to jail for contempt of court rather than to testify to a federal grand jury on the case. He would sit in jail for quite a long time, but he would finally win bail on November 9th, 1963, despite, you know, government protests. They did not want to let him out. To keep the pressure up, the authorities would even bring in family soldier and Bruno's brother-in-law, Peter Maggio, to testify to the grand jury where he spoke for 20 minutes before leaving in a hurry, being overheard commenting that, quote, this whole thing is ridiculous. On October 31st, 1963, Halloween, the federal grand jury would leverage the Konigsberg issue into an indictment which would ensnare Bruno and eight others. And again, not that this individual case didn't warrant any attention, but when you consider the broader enterprise going on, catching Bruno in this case when he was at best a secondary participant and then giving him the star billing, which they did, I guess I would actually have to go back and agree with Madeline Costello in that it was just a completely political maneuver and they were at this point in time, you know, trying to crucify him a little bit. Uh, and it was uh, purely a case of right guy, wrong crime, in my opinion. In fact, on November 1st, 1963, even the local papers would, you know, agree with me. They would admit that Bruno's role in this case was pretty minimal. To keep this shitstorm going on November 2nd, 1963, with Bruno still at large, news would drop that the FBI was looking into bringing more charges forward related to the $600,000 windfall profit that Bruno was said to have made from the purchase and resale of a vending company in Florida. Now, if I'm right, this goes all the way back to the bogus 1961 raid where cops tried to arrest him for some non-prescription pills, dangerous drugs, but found a few notes of papers indicating figures related to his vending machine business. That raid, which really seemed like a major failure by law enforcement at the time, was somewhat of a thorn in the side for Bruno by this point. Not just somewhat, it was a thorn in the side of Bruno. It just kept back... Uh, kept coming back to bite him by this point. By November 5th, 1963, there were some newspaper reports speculating that Bruno was potentially planning to abdicate his Cosa Nostra position in favor of living in exile, a la his predecessor, Joseph Ida. It was even speculated that Bruno fled the U.S. before Valachi even testified, knowing that bad storms were on the horizon for not just himself, but others. The report also stated that Bruno's hideout had been located by FBI agents and that he was reputed to be holed up in a pleasant villa somewhere in Italy near the Adriatic Sea, though the report didn't say where, only saying he was quitting for Dolce Vita, which is an Italian expression that simply means a life full of beauty, pleasures, and mundane events. 
it means a, a life of music, love, good music, food, in you know, just enjoying being uh, in a relaxing situation, so to speak. So there were beginning to be thoughts that Bruno was never coming back. And can you imagine how different things might have been in Philadelphia and for Bruno had that actually been the case? Now, talk about, uh, and I'm not going to go off on this tangent, but that's a real butterfly effect sort of moment. Although it was alleged that the Italian government may have actually been thinking of deporting him, and the U.S. was actually asking for help from Italian authorities to pinpoint his exact location, making a long-term stay in Italy potentially a pipe dream. And what I find crazy is that when people talk about the Vlachi hearings and everything going on at this time with the mob and Bobby Kennedy, a lot of times people fail to line up the timelines of events. We're literally less than a month before the assassination. We're weeks away from the assassination of President Kennedy when all of this stuff is going down. And now I can really see how the boiling point was being reached in the conspiracy. Though, to be clear, I don't believe the mafia, again, you know, going back to the last episode, I don't actually believe the mafia pulled the trigger, not to say that they weren't involved, but I don't believe that they were the trigger, trigger pullers, so to speak. And throughout all of this drama, you'd think that the Philadelphia underworld would be at a standstill, right? Completely stops. But in fact, that's the genius of the Cosa Nostra structure and setup. When one player is out, it's like a merry-go-round. I think I've heard it described as a merry-go-round. You take one player off, the merry-go-round keeps going. Uh, the next guy steps up, and the whole thing, at least at that time, just kind of keeps going and going and going. And Philadelphia was no different. Things were still going on. On November 14th, 1963, about a week out from the Kennedy assassination, there would be an arrest of some family members you might know for a beating laid out to two brothers who'd been delinquent on paying back their loans. The arrested would become well-known within the Philadelphia underworld, of course, the, their names Frank Chicky Narducci, who I mentioned earlier, and Frank the Barracuda Sindone, and three others. So like I said, things were still going on. Beatings were still being laid. Money was still being pulled in. Rackets were still being run. There would also be hoods getting nabbed with numbers, slips, indicating, like I just said, that things were in the Philly underworld. They were still going. But the beat goes on, right? The beat goes on even without Bruno. But for Bruno, who was still on the lam, things were still not in a good place. On November 16th, 1963, just six days before the assassination of President Kennedy, news broke that one of those arrested as a material witness who was being held in jail in contempt of court in the case, a guy named Samuel J. Roberts, had agreed to appear before the grand jury and answer questions. So, turned in, informant, rat essentially. He would eventually be cleared of all charges in the probe. So another development, that's not good for Bruno. And it's worth noting that just a week and a half after being granted bail, so if you remember, Phil Testa was sitting in prison, refused to talk for about a month after being arrested, then he was granted bail. Law enforcement protested. Week and a half after being granted bail, Phil Testa's bail was revoked, and he was remanded back to jail. Testa would be stuck in the can for over a year, over a year before finally gaining freedom, all for not talking. And you really have to wonder 
what he might have been thinking in this situation with his boss not only on the lamb, but there being speculation that he was never coming back. You got to wonder what's going through Testa's head, but he stuck to the code for sure. And then on November 22nd, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And as you can imagine, all mentions of Bruno in Philadelphia papers ceased. And he isn't talked about again, or he wasn't talked about again, despite getting literally wall-to-wall daily coverage for months until November 27th, five days later. And from November 27th to December 11th, you don't actually see another mention of Angelo Bruno. Now, this is not surprising as the nation was still largely in mourning and really reeling from from the tragedy. And I really do think that it was the break ultimately in law enforcement's momentum. They really had Bruno on the run. They had Cosa Nostra on the run. And it took this this break in the momentum, like I said, uh, you know, to really, you know, break open the case for Bruno, though I do believe that he would have ultimately beat the case either way. It was a weak case, but, you know, sometimes things are about momentum and this took all the wind out of the sails from a law enforcement perspective. But like I said, they truly had him on the run there for a little while. Unsurprisingly, on December 12th, 1963, so... Uh, less than a month after Kennedy's assassination, news would break that Angelo Bruno had decided to return home from Italy and would be arriving at New York's Idlewild Airport on December 13th to face the charges. Apparently, he'd stayed in Italy on the hopes of making a deal to get the income tax case against himself and his wife, or at least just for his wife, dropped, but stayed because no deal had been agreed to. That's the story. That's his story, at least. My bet is, though, that after the Kennedy assassination, I don't know if he knew it was coming, but after the assassination, it made it a lot easier for someone like him to come back to the U.S. confidently because now the government was reeling and Cosa Nostra again had the upper hand. Upon his return to the U.S., it was reported that he was seeking a, quote, dignified way to return to the country and that he didn't want to spend any more time in jail than he had to. In actuality, Bruno would be seized in Boston rather than New York and would not be granted the dignified return that he'd hoped for. Uh, This is where the often circulated picture of Bruno in a fedora and handcuffs pushing forward and and grimacing comes from. If you've seen that picture, that's this is where it comes from. Six FBI agents and a number of U.S. Marshals would be waiting for Bruno, who traveled alone and had sent his wife home separately at the airport. They'd be waiting for him and they arrested him as soon as he came down the exit ramp from his plane. He'd stay at the Boston airport for three hours before ultimately paying $75,000 bail and going free. So he had the money ready. Once back in the country, Bruno and his lawyers would begin their legal maneuvering in an effort to separate him from the case. Bruno would even say that he was honestly thinking of going into a multi-million dollar business in Italy and may have even stayed, was said to have been staying with family under his own name. And all of this was, of course, just an attempt to shift his narrative sort of for fleeing. He wasn't fleeing because the case, he was fleeing because there was a business opportunity and he wanted to see family, according to him. Bruno would ultimately plead not guilty on December 17th, 1963, and the trial would be set for the following year. 
So the bad times weren't over yet. on the outcome of the extortion case, which quite honestly was law enforcement's big push to, to nail Bruno, uh, let's go ahead and bury the lead. It didn't work out well for them. On March 18, 1964, the U.S. District Court would dismiss charges against Phil Testa, though they would actually keep him in jail on contempt charges for his failure to testify, meaning that he'd actually stay in jail for the foreseeable future. The next day, Bruno's trial would be postponed indefinitely, so I think they had an inkling that they did not have a strong case. Bruno would detail to friends his close relationship with Testa and that he felt he could not nor would leave Philadelphia with Testa still incarcerated. But just when you think that things were starting to break Angelo's way on April 4th of 1964, the Deputy Police Commissioner of Philadelphia would launch a personal campaign against Bruno, saying flatly that Bruno was the, quote, number one vice figure in the city of Philadelphia and mincing no words uh, about his intentions. Quote, I accused him of being back in business. I told him we were going to give him a workout, end quote. Commissioner Driscoll explained by business, he meant the numbers rackets. He said not only has Bruno been active in the racket since his return to Philadelphia from Italy recently, but that he also was forcing a big numbers banker to stay in business. Driscoll did not identify the victimized racketeer who he said owes Bruno a large sum of money, but he did say the following, quote, this man borrowed money from Bruno, and Bruno is making him stay in the rackets to pay back this loan at high Shylock rates of interest, end quote. Bruno would finally go on trial in the odyssey that was the Zavod extortion case in June of 1964. The accuser, Joseph L. Zavod, I uh, hope I am pronouncing that right, would testify that Bruno had cut $11,000 from his debt originally when trying to take over the loan, and also how he was even stabbed by one of Bruno's co-defendants, Harold Konigsberg. However, Zavod would quickly come under scrutiny when he admitted on the stand that neither Bruno or Dinaro, the, the other co-defendant in Bruno's underboss, attempted to extort money from him and also admitted that the FBI was actually eavesdropping during one of his extortion calls and was even offered uh, offering him $5,000 to tell his story in the Saturday Evening Post, that being the, the FBI was offering Zavod $5,000 to spill his story to a local paper. The government's case against Bruno and the others would continue to fall apart when one of their key witnesses would fail to identify Bruno when directly asked to, to do so. And finally, on July 9th, 1964, news broke that Bruno and three others would be acquitted by the jury, although two of his co-defendants would, would actually be found guilty. But for Bruno, the important thing is that him, himself, and, and three others were, were let off. So the long odyssey and what I thought to be really a very weak case against Bruno finally fell through and he was able to claim a legal victory over the government. Bruno would say the following to reporters after the case. Quote, I have only one comment to make. When I called from Rome, I said I had great confidence in American justice. This proves it. End quote.
Now that the case was over, Bruno would uh, go ahead and take a vacation and the Philadelphia underworld would rest a little easier for the time being. Now, let's reset on the family at this point. As noted, it would have about 80 active members running all sorts of criminal enterprises by this point, including your normal gambling, loan sharking, extortion activities, but also venturing into union corruption. And I'm just going to say it. I know Bruno was, you know, publicly against this, but but, you know, they would eventually get into drugs. Uh, and, and I think that that's going to be proven without a shadow of a doubt. Maybe not this episode, but in the coming episodes. Also, by 1964, the FBI had noted at least 24 informants in Philadelphia, New Jersey, and Florida reporting on the activities of the Bruno crime family. Now, that is a lot of people talking, and it does speak to the effectiveness, even after the assassination of his brother, of Bobby Kennedy's efforts, as well as the fact that there were plenty of people informing well before the likes of Joe Valachi came around. There were a lot of people talking uh, about the mob. It's just Valachi was the first one to bring it into public and the first one to be publicized. In addition to informants, there were a lot of bugs around, as I said, most of which were completely illegal in nature, catching conversations of Bruno and other family members around this time. A lot of bugs. In fact, Bruno's crew was caught on wiretaps on October 24th, 1964, discussing the kidnapping of Joe Bonanno of New York with a man named Frank Nicoletti, who we referenced earlier, suggesting that Bonanno was trying to obstruct uh, his testifying before a federal grand jury in New York City and stating that Bonanno had been around a long time and that they didn't think that he would talk. Now, when the conversation turned to Bruno's thoughts, Bruno was alleged to have ignored the question, making no comment. Silence is a pretty powerful thing. Another report indicated that uh, acting in the capacity of a commission member, Bruno had been intimately involved in the handling of the Bonanno situation and Bonanno's subsequent suspension from Cosa Nostra activities. Not saying he was the main guy making the calls. I think we all know that that was Gambino, but as a commission member, he was certainly involved in those conversations. In another situation around this time, there was an incident in which a special agent overhearing an argument between Bruno and Mr. Mig Polino went into enemy territory, so to speak, and nearly got himself uh, outed in a very dangerous situation. Quote, Shortly after noon, Angelo Bruno was observed standing at the southeast corner of Baith and Christian Streets. Bruno called out a greeting to agents who were in an automobile facing west at the corner of 8th and Christian Streets awaiting traffic signal light to change from red to green. At about 1.20 p.m., again while driving west on Christian Street, agents stopped for a red light at 8th Street. Frank Lascalzo was standing on the southeast corner, and he motioned towards the agents, indicating he wanted to speak with them. Agents then turned left and parked on the west side of 8th Street between the corner and Alfonso Mayoriello's barbershop. Lascalzo walked over to the car and exchanged greetings with the agents. He then informed the agents that he had received a three-year probation sentence as a result of an action in the U.S. District Court of Philadelphia. He said that it would be very difficult to comply with the terms of the probation which prohibit him from associating with gamblers. Lascalzo said that all of his friends are gamblers and that he is associated with gamblers throughout his life. 
Subsequently, Lo Scalzo departed, and Agent Hegarty noted that Antonio Polino was on the premises of the barber shop and was looking towards the agents. Agent Hegarty then glanced to his left and observed Angelo Bruno standing directly across the street, that is, on the east side of 8th Street. Bruno greeted the agents and walked over to the car the agents were seated in. He inquired as to the agent's health and asked if there was anything he could do to assist the agents. He offered to treat the agents to a cup of coffee, a hot meal, or a shave at Mayoriello's barbershop. All three offers were declined. Bruno departed. At 1.30 p.m., Agent Barica entered Mayoriello's barbershop, 902 South 8th Street, Philadelphia, PA, and observed Angelo Bruno and Dominic Polina engaged in a heated conversation. Conversation was in a foreign language. Agent Varica told Mr. Bruno that he, Varica, wished to use the telephone. Bruno directed Agent Varica to the kitchen where a phone was located on a small stand location on the left side of the room. The kitchen is on the first floor of the building directly to the rear of the barbershop. Upon completion of his telephone call, Agent Varica left the kitchen and passed through the barbershop. Mr. Bruno stopped him in the presence of Polina and asked him how he knew Polina. Polina attempted to say something, and Bruno told him to be quiet. Polina remained quiet. Bruno then asked, Did you ever see him before? Pointing to Polina. Varica replied that he had seen him many times. Polina became excited. Special Agent Varica then suggested to Mr. Polina that if he has any problems, he should see Mr. Bruno. Bruno laughed at this, and Polina became very angry. Agent Farika then began to depart, and Mr. Migos said that he wanted to talk further. Agent Farika then told Mr. Polina and Mr. Bruno that he, too, has a capo who tells him when to go and when to come. Polina, at this remark, appeared speechless with emotion. Bruno was no longer laughing and said nothing. Agent Farika then departed. End quote. But that's just, that's how close the FBI was watching Bruno and his men at this time. They were literally right there on top of them and not not afraid to walk right in the room with them to use the phones where they were literally sitting and talking. And in turn, though they, being Bruno in the Philadelphia LCN, had no idea how much of their conversations were actually being recorded, they were, and you can see it in that conversation, doing their own version of counter-surveillance and this report could have easily turned into a problem for that particular special agent, even despite the rule against harming law enforcement officials. It was a dangerous situation for sure. Now, finally, by 1965, after five years or so of being the boss, my research leads me to believe that Angelo Bruno finally settled into a groove without too much additional drama. Sure, there was the occasional law enforcement issue here and there, but by and large, he was in the clear around this time. Speaking of a little bit of law enforcement coverage in February of 1965, there were some connections made to the Philly LCN, but no actual arrests or serious charges made in the execution-style double murder from June of 1964 of a woman named Judy Lopinson and Joseph Joe Flowers Melito in a South Philadelphia establishment named Dante's Restaurant, which for those Philadelphians, correct me if I'm wrong, eventually maybe became Dante and Luigi's. Don't throw pitchforks at me, but uh, if you know, maybe that's the, the restaurant. Pretty brutal uh, execution-style double murder. And I'm going to talk about this one in the Hits episode because there eventually was a connection made to 
a certain member who I won't name uh, in that hit, although I, I actually believe that it tended to be maybe a crime of passion. But we'll see. Uh, then in March of 1965, there were raids on Bruno's wire rooms, but again, no serious charges against Bruno himself. In May, Also in May of 1965, Bruno would be called to testify in front of a federal grand jury in New York in which claims that a Little Appalachian conference of nine commission members had been held in Philadelphia at some point in the past 18 months. Now, this is going to put me on a soapbox. Law enforcement officials were very keen to tie arrests to the National Syndicate at that point in time, as you can imagine, and there were several, not just one, several quote-unquote little Appalachian incidents reported by the papers around this time. Literally any meeting of multiple people, they were trying to slap that, that little tag on there. Now, this subpoena in particular allegedly was at the time the first one served to an alleged member of Cosa Nostra outside of Manhattan, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, I find that a little hard to believe, but that's what the paper claimed. Bruno and his brother-in-law, Peter Maggio, would be called in to testify several times in 1965, and specifically the grand jury was looking for information on the goings-on in the Bonanno family, though ultimately nothing really all that significant would come of it. More raids of dice games would happen in September of 1965 with Bruno family member Frank Chicky Narducci getting picked up. Uh, great picture in the paper, by the way. Uh, but again, no major issues for Bruno himself. And because the 1964 trial saga didn't quite go away for good, news would break in October of 1965 that two witnesses in that uh, extortion trial actually, quote unquote, took a dive in favor of Bruno. So they'd gotten to, they being the Philadelphia LCN, they got to the jury. Uh, now, this doesn't surprise me, but again, the case against Bruno was pretty weak. So he was probably at this point in time with all the political power that he had, trying to play all the angles to make sure it was 100% certain that he'd beat the case. And he did his best, along with the family, to sort of rig the odds in the family and in Bruno's favor. Despite the losing streak on the part of the federal government after Kennedy went down, they were still claiming that Cosa Nostra and even Bruno himself were on the ropes by the end of 1965. They couldn't have been more wrong. And history will tell us that Bruno would trudge forward as the family's leader for another 15 years. To bolster Bruno's power in the mid-1960s was the fact that one of South Philadelphia's leading police inspectors, John F. Driscoll, who'd long been pretty bullish on nailing Bruno and the mob, had been stripped of his command after the FBI discovered an interstate gambling ring operating right in his area, which to me is no surprise, right under his nose. From a hospital bed in February of 1966, Driscoll would relay the story of how an informer came to him in fear of his life and told him that he was, quote, on his way out and that he, quote, was to be discredited, that being Driscoll. Uh, so inform informants were coming to him saying, hey, you're Driscoll, you're out. <laughs> you're going to be discredited in the papers, right? Uh, you're going to get a bad name and you're going to be out. It was alleged in the story that members of the Bruno organization offered plainclothes policemen $800 a month, a lot of money back in that uh, back in that time, to allow them to operate in South Philadelphia. And Driscoll would go on to say that the demotion had brought his reputation down to zero and that the racketeers wouldn't fear him now. They definitely would not fear him 
and and they pretty much got him demoted and offered a lot of money uh, to the local police uh, in compensation for looking the other way. So Bruno, who was really pretty good at this, was playing politics and was smart enough to buy off the local police force. And quite honestly, it sounds like he broke this man Driscoll's will, although the demoted commander was still outwardly pretty defiant. That said, throughout 1966, authorities would continue to make gambling raids and police probes of numbers banks, though the overall effectiveness in slowing down the Bruno organization, who had a piece of most of the action by this point, was limited at best. In April of 1966, police arrested Bruno, Phil Testa, Genevieve's family member Gerald Laetta, as well as two others in another gambling crackdown, the authorities had been on to the men for approximately two weeks, and allegedly the actual takedown occurred during a meeting about territorial discussions between Cosa Nostra families. And in this case, knowing how the history would turn out, I found this to be an interesting read and thought some of the article worth quoting. Quote, Bruno Pinch wrecks gang boundary talks. The arrest of Angelo Bruno and four other men came at a mediation meeting between two gangland syndicates setting up boundaries of operations, a high police official said today. The police official, who asked not to be named, said there are two large syndicates now operating in Philadelphia. One is the well-known Cosa Nostra, or Mafia, and the other is a nameless organization, not so well-known but almost as powerful. Some problems were developing between the two groups over territorial boundaries, and to avoid trouble, a meet was ordered for Tuesday night in Dave Shore's restaurant on South Quince Street. The dispute was to be settled by a mediator from a national crime syndicate. But police barged in and arrested the four negotiators and the mediator. They also booked the two owners of the restaurant on charges of serving undesirables. The police official said two of those arrested, Bruno, 55, of Snyder Avenue near 9th Street, and his sidekick, Philip Testa, 41, of Carpenter Street near 10th, represented Cosa Nostra. Two others pinched, Jack Newman, 68, of 15th Street near Locust, and Albert Silverberg, 67, of 17th Street near Limkiln Pike, represented the second local organization. And the fifth man, Gerald Laetta, 60, of Long Island City, New York, was the imported mediator. Boundary lines within which each organization would have had to work were an immediate necessity, the police officer said. When one organization encroaches on another's territory, deadly squabbles can develop. Laetta, a top-ranking henchman of Vito Genovese, reputed national Cosa Nostra boss, knew the ropes and the boundary lines of existing organizations in Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland. Therefore, he was the natural to mediate between the Philadelphia factions. Although police have been keeping an eye on Newman and Silverberg, their arrest was the first indication they were back in the business. Back in the 30s, both men had been called the city's number one public enemies, professional killers, gangsters. But a short time later, they were jailed for a gangland killing in the Midwest. They each spent 31 years behind bars. End quote. Ultimately, all five men would be charged with common gambling and released on $500 bail. Now, I did find it interesting to see the family involved in a territorial dispute, and I can only assume that these guys that they had been talking to may have been part of the Jewish mob, who Bruno had a good relationship with. Had they not, I'm going to assume Bruno would have had them whacked summarily 
as would most bosses before the point of even meeting in any sort of territorial mediation dispute. And because Bruno at the time pretty much ran the city, it took all of 15 minutes to dismiss the case. 15 minutes, that's it. As the newspaper would say, quote, with almost embarrassing ease. The meeting, which would also be dubbed as another, and I told you, Little Appalachian by the Philadelphia Inquirer, although the significance of the meeting was highly questionable at best and insignificant at worst. But again, anything to drum up a little media attention and shine a spotlight on the mafia if you're law enforcement into the newspapers the mafia sells, so why not try to drum it up, sell more papers? Also happening in April of 1966, Bruno would lose one of the key pillars of his power base and a guy who'd been pretty instrumental in his rise to power with the death of one of his top lieutenants, Felix Skinny Razor de Tullio of congestive heart failure. De Tullio had been one of Bruno's biggest loan sharks and enforcers and had been his main man in Atlantic City for quite some time by this point. Ultimately, the death of Skinny Razor would prove to be a critical event in the future of Cosa Nostra in Philadelphia, as it would set the stage for one man named, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you know, Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo to step into the forefront as the next man up, so to speak, in Atlantic City. So Skinny Razor goes down, Nicky steps up, and at this point, he's kind of a nobody. As a result, Scarfo would begin his ascension throughout the rest of the 1960s and into the 1970s, eventually becoming one of Bruno's key men and eventually becoming the boss himself in the 1980s. That being said, uh, while I won't get into it too far, I think it's fair to say that Nicky and Angelo's relationship was probably much different than DeTulio's relationship with Angelo, and that fact probably didn't help Angelo's overall standing in the years to come. Again, that's a rabbit hole. Not going to cover it today, but it's definitely going to be covered in the next episode. They were friends, right? Uh, but they they weren't as sort of thick as thieves as as Bruno and Detulio were. But for now, Scarfo was just a lowly soldier, kind of a nobody, left in charge of the dwindling prospect that at the time was Atlantic City. You know, you know the 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 fortunes were still a little bit far out on the horizon. Fast forward to the summer of 1966, and Bruno was discovered to have been lambing it in Vegas, uh, so traveling around again, after his last gambling pinch. The FBI would say that they had evidence that Bruno and 21 others had a hidden interest in several Vegas casinos. Not surprising. According to reports at the time, and also what we know about mob history, the mob's involvement uh, was primarily in the Vegas skim, and the Cosa Nostra families were taking at least $1 million per month off the top from Vegas casinos, which translates into roughly $9.4 million per month, not per year, per month in today's money, or just a paltry $113 million annually. Uh, and I'd have to look into other numbers. That actually seems a little low. But it's still $113 million being split amongst the, the families. That's not chump change. But despite knowing what was going on, the FBI at that point in time was pretty powerless to stop it, despite knowing that LCN and Bruno uh, and others were pretty heavily involved in knowing what their positions in the underworld were. And so the rivers of the illicit profits, you know, for Bruno and the rest of Cosa Nostra coming out of Vegas just kept on flowing uh, for at least another decade, two decades. As a result, with no more 
success than before. The IRS would attempt to open up a Capone-era tax war in the Bruno mob and organized crime in general in Philadelphia, hoping to capture gangsters who couldn't properly account for their illicit wealth when it came to their taxes. But by this point, Bruno was pretty much a master of hiding his illegitimate money in legitimate businesses and was very much insulated from day-to-day -day crimes uh, in his organization. So you know, catching him and proving that he was committing certain crimes was almost impossible at that point in time. Hell, uh, <laughs> Bruno would be riding so high by this point that he'd look to expand into casinos in London. I referenced this earlier in partnerships with a few other underworld figures and reports that I came across would indicate that he'd been seen in London roughly nine different times by authorities over the course of nine weeks in and around this time. He would be seen along with his cousin, John Simone or Johnny Keys. Uh, and by this point, it was said that Bruno did actually own a piece of a London casino, which I talked about earlier, reputed to have been the Colony Sports Club. And who did he own this casino with, you might ask? Take a guess. Bet you're not going to guess it, but it's none other than Meyer Lansky. Uh, and I bet uh, you weren't aware of that, nor was I. I was not aware of that. That was a new piece of information, though I had heard that Bruno had, had been in London uh, on the fringes in the past. But I didn't know that it was Bruno and Lansky. And additionally, it was alleged that they used actor the actor George Raft as their frontman. There's a pretty famous picture of George Raft in this casino. So this is an indication of how powerful Bruno had become by this point and the relationships that he truly had. He's, you know, has relationships with all the heavy hitters. Now, unfortunately for Bruno and his compatriots, Britain would crack down on US crime figures and ban him uh, the following year. So it was short lived, but you get the point. Uh, powerful by this point, nearly above the law, and looking for expansion opportunities. That's Bruno. But Bruno would have another bit of luck, as in September of 1966, the infamous La Stella restaurant raid would occur, which law enforcement gloated at the time as another little Appalachian, although it also would not end up being very significant in any way. Now, Bruno, as fate would have it, why? and I guess you're probably asking, why was he lucky, was supposed to be at the La Stella meeting, but changed his plans at the last minute and thus avoided the publicity of the bust. So good for good for him. As you get into 1967, the Bruno family appeared to be gaining strength under Bruno's leadership. By February of 1967, the, the federal government would claim that they were actually winning the quiet war on Cosa Nostra in Philadelphia with more than 80 men working on the Bruno family full time. But the facts of the matter don't really support that argument as the Bruno organization by this point was just getting stronger and Bruno himself was probably at or close to the height of his power in the mid to late 1960s, although, you know, that's subjective. But I, I tend to believe that mid to late 60s was his pinnacle. Going back to the report, uh, this was public posturing, in my opinion, that had very little tangible effect on the day-to-day -day operations of the Bruno organization and Cosa Nostra as a whole. As evidence, in the same month, the very same FBI that said they were winning the quiet war on Bruno would in fact link Bruno to 80, say that again, 80 legit businesses. How, how can anybody keep track of that first, first off, but 80? To any objective person, this fact doesn't scream winning at all. This screams that you're losing and Bruno is outsmarting you. 
the Philadelphia Daily News would say the following, quote, Mafia probers link Bruno to 80 legit businesses. Federal agents say Angelo Bruno, the squire of Snyder Avenue and reputed capo mafioso local leader of the Cosa Nostra here, has his hands in some 80 legit businesses. These facts were uncovered by a flying squad of 50 federal agents who recently descended on the city to look into Bruno's activities. The squad, made up of members of the FBI, the Internal Revenue Service, the Bureau of Narcotics, and the Treasury and Labor Departments, is the Justice Department's latest weapon in a national attack on at least 15 of 24 big LCN families. The 50-member squad currently is putting the heat on local boy Bruno of Snyder Avenue near 10th Street. So far, they reportedly have connected the syndicate allegedly headed by Bruno with 80 enterprises in this country and abroad. End quote. Again, this doesn't seem like winning on the government's behalf. This seems like not just losing, but losing spectacularly. They had 50 people in four governmental divisions on Bruno at this point and could come up with nothing but legit businesses to connect him to criminal activities. They, they had nothing. Bruno, by this point, would be so confident that he'd actually sort of joke with newspaper photographers when called into police commissioner Frank Rizzo's station for a quote-unquote get-acquainted session with the Philadelphia Inquirer reporting Bruno saying the following, quote, I came to see the reporters, not the commissioner, end quote. Jokingly, when a photographer ran in front of him for a better camera angle, Bruno playfully grabbed him by the collar and said, quote, slow down. Uh, and that's very Gotti-esque uh, of him to do, uh, although Gotti was a nobody at this point, but that was very Gotti-esque. So by this point, I think it's clear he's feeling pretty good and very secure in his position. But don't worry. <laughs> They'd get him for speeding in 1967, and it was the one charge in the 1960s that he couldn't beat. Speeding. Good job, guys. You got him. $50, $55 fine. Everybody can sleep better at night. <laughs> uh, now, on a more serious note, by October of 1967, the Mafia and Bruno, who would be arrested, would be caught taking advantage of the tax on cigarettes importing large quantities of cigarettes from North Carolina, where there is no tax, and selling them in Pennsylvania, which had the highest tax in the nation, right? So make a, a nice profit. Now, this scheme, which the authorities creatively dubbed, and I like this, butt-legging, doesn't seem like it, uh, it would have been illegal, but it's the same thing as with numbers. When the government is being cheated out of their tax money, that's when they're going to pounce. And this scheme in particular was very big for the mafia, not just in Philadelphia, but up and down the, the East Coast. Everybody was taking advantage of that North Carolina cigarette loophole. You even see it in The Sopranos. But despite all the legal hubbub of 1967, a lot of which was just blowing smoke, to close out the year, Bruno would actually win, and I kid you not, a major award for those that get that reference, you might think that this is a joke, uh, and again, <laughs> I laughed quite a bit when I saw this, but in the Christmas season of 1967, his Trenton, New Jersey residence would actually win a Christmas lighting contest. Kid you not. Uh, true story, uh, apparently even mob bosses like Christmas lights, and I guess that shouldn't be a surprise. They're just people, right? And he won a lighting contest, so major award. 
And that is the kind of hard-hitting facts and investigative research you get with this podcast. I can guarantee nobody knew that he won that major award. So there you go. As I mentioned, by the late 1960s, Bruno was probably at the height of his power in Philadelphia in terms of both personal power and prestige, although you could argue that maybe his power grew when Atlantic City started to boom again in the late 70s. But again, my opinion is his, his power is at the pinnacle right now. By this point, much of the progress made by the FBI in the early 1960s had been shelved and law enforcement had really fallen back into somewhat of a, a state of apathy with regards to combating the the mafia their 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 muscles which were strong in the early 60s had had really atrophied by this point so they really had nothing going Ralph Salerno, a well-known expert on organized crime and retired NYPD detective, would discuss the Philadelphia LCN to a panel of 100 executives at a crime commission luncheon in January of 1968. He would say the following, quote, Organized crime could theoretically work without a fix. However, racketeers elect not to operate in an area where two things are not present, fear and corruption, end quote. Salerno would go on to say that organized crime in Philadelphia followed the same pattern and that one of the biggest problems of the time when it came to policing the mafia was that police were required to fight modern crime with antiquated laws and had not yet developed sophisticated methods of electronic evidence gathering. The bugs used in the, the Kennedy days were still illegal at the time, right? So remember, this was before the days of RICO and the mafia was really in its full zenith of its power. I'd say this is the this is the pinnacle of the golden age right here. And the Bruno family specifically would be very strong within the the national Cosa Nostra hierarchy and would have some degree of stability going into the late 1960s with respected members like Joe Rugnetta still in place as Bruno's consigliere, and even the much maligned Ignacio De Naro, despite their differences earlier in the decade, was still serving as the family's underboss. So that's uh, about a, a run of about 10 years of stability by this point. And though these things change over time, during the late 1960s, the FBI would report that the family had eight capos leading the family's crews, which were headed by the following men. Joseph Joe Scafidi, Peter Maggio, who replaced Alfred Freddy Ietzi. It's worth noting that Harry the Hunchback Riccoboni was reputed to have refused a promotion, so Maggio replaced Ietzi. Joseph Lanciano, who replaced Pasquale Pat Massey, who was having some legal issues at the time and had allegedly engaged in some sexual proclivities that enraged the Philadelphia LCN, resulting in his demotion, though he'd live on until 1980. John, Johnny Keyes, Simone, sometimes also called Johnny Casablanca or John Casablanca. Nicholas, Nicky Buck Piccolo, Scarfo's uncle. Philip, the chicken man, Testa. Joseph Schilitano, John, Johnny Capello. In total, the FBI had a record of 121 people being recognized as members of Bruno's family, 82 of which at the time were still living with 39 deceased. Uh, again, this was just a moment in time, but it gives you an idea of the relative size of the family in comparison to New York families. Like I said earlier, they often have about 150 to 250 members each or a little more, a little less. That's about the average. So 
pretty decent sized family when you compare it to other families not in New York. Another FBI report in 1968 would also list out the following men as alleged members of the family living and residing in Pennsylvania and New Jersey at the time, not counting the capos and administration members I just mentioned. Some of them you'll most assuredly know as powerhouses or members who'd eventually rise up to leadership positions within the family, while others will most certainly probably be new information. Pennsylvania. Vincenzo Amato. Edward Caminiti, Peter Casella, Dominic DeVito, Francesco DiBella, Rocco Di Candina, Ignazio Di Girolamo, Adam Diolio, Albert Esposito, Vincent Fusky, Leonard Galante, James Gatto, John Giganti Jr., Frank Greco, Anthony Iacono, Santo Idone, Alfred Ayetzi, Federico Lagana, Joseph Lagana, Dominic Lapore, Alphonse Marconi, Guarino Marconi, Frank Monti, Anthony Narcisi, Frank Narducci, Frank Nicoletti, Leonard Nicoletti, Frank Palermo Sr., Ernest Pericone, Anthony Piccolo, Joseph Piccolo, Michael Piccolo, Antonio Polina, Filippo Polina, Luigi Corenta, Frank Ricci, Harry Riccobani, Santo Romeo, Dominic Rugnetta, Giuseppe Sabato, Rocco Scafidi, Antonino Nino Schilatano, Antonino Tony Schilatano, Philip Testa, and Frank Zerfoli, New Jersey, Michael Amico, Carmen Battaglia, Louis Campbell, Antonio Caponegro, Peter F. Casella, Angelo Chirico, Charles Costello, Joseph Costello, Vito Jenna, Joseph Gurgenti, Vincenzo Joe, Giuseppe Ida, Carl Ippolito, William Lapergola, Dominic Luciano, Pasquale Massi, Dominic Olivetto, Salvatore Pasolacqua, Samuel Scafidi, Nicodemo, also called Nicholas in this report, Scarfo, you know his name, George Schimeca, Michael Tremontana, Vincenzo Turco, and Anthony Verniero. So the empire Bruno was running at this time was fairly significant, and the family, despite maybe not being as big as New York or Chicago, had many members operating across several states. Running a family of this size and, and magnitude is a lot to handle if you're Bruno or, or anyone. And there is certainly a lot of complexity and finesse involved in, in running a family as well, which I think most people at the time would agree he was doing a pretty good job of, despite the various grievances here and there from some members. I think by the late 60s, I think most people would say he was doing a pretty good job. Had you polled the members by this point, I think they'd have said he was a very good boss. Fair, smart, leading them into the future. Now, that would ultimately change, but at this point, I think things were good. But I digress. In March of 1968, you would begin to see reports indicating that Atlantic City was becoming a favorite destination of many East Coast mobsters, Bruno included, and this was a bit of foreshadowing of things to come in the next two decades or so. This is how Scarfo's power base ends up growing so significantly. 
also going on in March of 1968, an informant dubbed MMT3 out of Florida advised that whenever there is any dispute among Italian, uh, the Italian criminal element over Shylocking in the Miami area, the four individuals who meet and make a decision are some names you might recognize. Angelo Bruno, of course, Joe Massey, LCN member from Detroit, Tony Salerno of the Genovese family of New York, and Joe Rivers, also uh, referred to as Joseph Salisi, but Joe Rivers, if you've read the book Havana Nocturne, you'll know who he is, uh, was big time at one point in Cuba, very big time with Meyer Lansky. Miami, of course, and much of Florida was an open city in that no LCN families could headquarter there, specifically in Miami, and there were reputed to have been as many as 10 LCN families represented down in Miami in the late 1960s. One of the events that required a, a major sit down, and maybe this is a, a future episode at some point, was relating to the very public murders of John Beale and Thomas Altamira, which has uh, had been you know, recently causing trouble in the Miami, Florida area as of the late 60s. I won't get too far into this case, but and I'll show show some paperwork for those that are watching, but suffice it to say that Bruno, playing his part on the commission, had a significant voice in ironing out the tense situation that had really developed down there. Fast forward to July of 1968, and Angelo Bruno, along with other mob heavyweights and what I'll just call Little Estella, <laughs> were arrested over egg rolls in the House of Chan restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. Also, uh, part of the arrest was none other than Bruno's good friend, Carlo Gambino, fellow commission member Joe Colombo, as well as other LCN members, Thomas Masato, John Simone, and Vincent Alo. This, like the 1966 La Stella meeting, is, a, is significant as it puts multiple commission members together in a public place at the same time, but ultimately nothing would come of this raid and everyone would be pretty quickly released. Now, if I'm not wrong, and I may be wrong here, I don't think I am, but I may be, this is where you get the famous pictures of Bruno talking to Gambino and walking along uh, with other members, the other members I just mentioned, along New York streets. You see them in pictures together. I think that's the only pictures where they're actually placed together at the same time. I'm pretty sure these are the only known photos that put Bruno and Gambino physically together in the same picture, but again, I could be wrong. In September of 1968, Bruno and five other men, including his protege Phil Testa, would again be picked up on gambling charges as part of a police raid. As you can see, this is pretty routine by this point. They're pretty used to going in and out. And speaking of famous mob pictures, this is where you get that famous picture of Bruno smiling in the background, very confident, with Phil Testa being handcuffed in the forefront, looking a, a little less confident, maybe a little more gruff in the forefront of the picture. This one's shared quite often. All of the men would be charged with breach of peace, common gambling, and conspiracy. Now, save for the 1963 case and the House of Chan arrest, this was one of the more interesting occasions that Bruno was picked up in that he was apprehended at a meeting where the subject of London casinos was supposedly being discussed and the other men who were picked up included some interesting names. So he's still really on the, the London casino train here despite being kind of kicked out. Uh, so at this meeting, Phil Testa, as we know, Bruno's right-hand man in Philly, a guy named Robert Dick, who is the manager of the Victoria Sporting Club in London. So 
They kicked him out, but they still can't keep him out. Looks to have maybe been still getting a piece. Joseph Napolitano, reputed to have been a lieutenant to none other than Raymond Patriarca in New England. Uh, Theodore Fucillo, uh, a Rackets figure in Boston. And then Frank Frankie Flowers Delfonso, Philadelphia associate at this time, who would more famously be murdered in the 1980s under Scarfo's regime, but definitely a name you would know. And just like every other case in the 1960s, Bruno Testa and the others would beat the rap fairly quickly and with great ease. They were pretty good at beating these raps by this point. To show just how much Bruno had things in the bag, the Philadelphia Daily News would report the following. Quote, Bruno, five others discharged. Angelo Bruno, some other reputed Cosa Nostra big shots, and a London gambling man were freed today of the charges on which they'd been arrested in a South Philadelphia raid on September 25th. The hearing before Magistrate Louis Mangaluzzo at the 11th and Wharton Street Police Station had about as much tension and animosity as a family picnic. Everyone was pleasant to everyone else. There was much laughter and no one got mad at anything. Magistrate Mangaluzzo finally broke up the gab fest by announcing, Right now I don't have anything in front of me and I'm discharging the case. He meant there was no evidence before him on the charges of breach of peace, common gambling, and conspiracy. End quote. So as you can see, the pattern of law enforcement at this time was pretty much what I can only describe as catch and release, and no charges against Bruno and his pals were really sticking, and Bruno had enough power and influence to pretty much have most issues taken care of with pretty minimal effort. He could, he could squash just about anything at this point. Closing out the 1960s, a Pennsylvania Crime Commission would refer to the National LCN as having five branch offices in the state, with Angelo Bruno serving as one of the branch managers, which in my opinion actually had the effect of making him seem less important in the overall grand scheme of things that he, than he actually was, and maybe even had the effect of belittling each boss despite the point of trying to say just how pervasive the mafia was in this state and for you office fans this is essentially i guess like calling him the the michael scott of the the mafia just a, a manager a manager right <laughs> love that show by the way but i'm the godfather it is really funny but you know that can be confusing according to a february report in the philadelphia inquirer the commission would report that mafia related crime in the state was in actuality thriving quote Mafia reported running five state branch offices. Harrisburg, February 7th. Five of 24 branch offices operated by a national crime syndicate, the Mafia or Cosa Nostra, are in Pennsylvania with a heavy concentration in Philadelphia, it was reported Friday, by a special task force investigating crime in the state. The Pennsylvania Crime Commission said 78 of the 142 known syndicate members in Pennsylvania were under the command of Angelo Bruno, who runs the Southeast Pennsylvania branch of the syndicate. Bruno, the grandfatherly type who lives in a modest South Philadelphia row house, also sits on the nine-member board of trustees that operates the National Crime Syndicate, according to the report. Crime Thriving among Bruno's aides, according to the commission, 44 live in Philadelphia, 27 in New Jersey, 6 in Delaware County, and 1 in Schuylkill County. Organized crime is thriving in Pennsylvania, the report stated. 
In Pennsylvania, from gambling alone, organized crime grosses an estimated $2 billion a year, as much as the entire state operating budget. The crime ranges from organized racketeering with its brutal enforcement methods through white-collar tax cheats to the pitiful alcoholic who accounts for 46% of the non-traffic arrest each year in the state. Minor thugs ignored. The list of 142 syndicate members does not give proper significance to the status of organized crime in the state, according to Attorney General William C. Senate. This is because, Senate said, there are hundreds of minor thugs who work for the syndicate, doing the dirty work and accomplishing the day-to-day -day business. The commission singled out Samuel DeCavalcante, a Trenton mobster, as running the rackets in Bucks County. Others identified. The other Pennsylvania crime bosses were listed as Stefano Magadino, a Buffalo, New York hoodlum who operates with seven accomplices in Erie County. John LaRocca, a McCandless Township operator who controls the Pittsburgh area and several adjacent counties with 32 cohorts. And Carlo Gambino, a New York racketeer who, with underboss Russell Buffalino, deals in the northeast portion of Pennsylvania and has 18 men in Luzerne County, three in Lackawanna County, one in Philadelphia, and one in Delaware County. End quote. Now, for the record, I think the commission got Buffalino's status wrong since he was running his own family by that point, but he was a bit of an all-around player for the families and very influential. I think we can all agree on that. Overall, the report just goes to show how effective the mafia had become since getting pushed really hard by the government in the early 1960s and how much they really were hitting their stride going into the decade of the 1970s, making this time period really in my opinion, the golden age for the mob across the country and specifically in Philadelphia. But for Bruno, the end of the 1960s would pass with a little fanfare. There would be wiretaps from 1966, which would subsequently be reported in the papers much later, in which Bruno was caught lecturing fellow boss Sam the Plumber de Cavalcante on the code of the mafia while mediating a dispute. So 1966, it's recorded, reported in the late 60s. Probably slightly embarrassing for both, but really no harm done. Uh, maybe I'll do an episode eventually on those transcripts as well. Headlines that year would read that Bruno looks like a businessman and goes about unnoticed. And I think that that was purely intentional. He wanted to stay low key and he was good at, uh, good at business. He just wanted to do business, very Castellano-esque, uh, which surprises me that those two didn't get along better uh, once Gambino died. But that's his essence, and that's probably what played a part in his various nicknames. More of a racketeer than a killer, right? But he seemed harmless. But in reality, again, he was anything but. He was not harmless. And not to overstate Bruno's importance or power, because we all know there was heavy influence there from Gambino, but an August 1969 report from the Justice Department would list Bruno as one of the top Cosa Nostra bosses in the entire nation. Quote, Bruno among top six in Mafia in Justice Department report. Angelo Bruno, to no one's surprise, has retained his position as local boss in the Justice Department's latest edition of Who's Who in La Cosa Nostra. Bruno, representing the Philadelphia branch, was named with five other Mafia Commission members in an updated list of underground hierarchy published yesterday in the congressional record by Senator John L. McClellan, Democrat, Arkansas. The names of Mafia Commission members supplied by Attorney General John N. Mitchell included Carlo Gambino, 
Joseph Colombo, and Paul Siaka of New York, Stefano Magadino, Buffalo, New York, Joseph Cirilli, Detroit, and Bruno. Mitchell's List noted that there are two commission spots open in the New York families of Vito Genovese and Thomas Lucchese. The list of mafia officers in Philadelphia, as supported by the Justice Department, includes Angelo Bruno Anelloro, boss, Ignazio Denaro, underboss, Joseph Rugnetta, conciliary, counselor, and Capo Decina, lieutenant, Philip Testa, John Capello, Joseph Lanciano, Joseph Schilitano, Peter J. Maggio, Nicholas Piccolo, Joseph Scafidi, and John Simone. End quote. Now, you can argue here and there with the accuracy of the Justice Department's information, as I believe the Lucchese and the Genovese families probably did have active commission representation at this time, but the report was directly or directionally accurate and underlined Bruno's standing nationally as one of LCN's most prominent members, both in actuality and according to the government. And as the 1960s finally closed, there would be more speculation that Bruno would consider vacating Philadelphia permanently for the call of the South down in Florida. And if he knew his ultimate fate, I'm sure he'd have been happy to have retired peacefully to Florida. But alas, that's, that's just not what happened. And so as you got into the 1970s, Bruno's decline as the head of the Philadelphia Cosa Nostra would begin. And some would argue that some chinks in the armor had already started to show in the 60s, but really in the 70s is when the decline starts. But we'll discuss that in part three or four of our ongoing Bruno series, so stay tuned for that. Okay, that's it for this episode. Again, it was another beast of an episode. I feel like I only make beasts of episodes, and I apologize again that it takes me so long to produce these episodes from, you know, from the research to shooting to editing. I hope you can appreciate that. Uh, I go to, you know, links. I, I, I put hours upon hours uh, of my free time into this, so I hope you appreciate the research and the depth and hopefully the storytelling. Now, coming up next, we're going to do our part and knock out the final part of the Cerritos. I think that will just take one more part. And we'll be coming back and eventually finishing up Bruno, which at this point probably is going to be three, four, maybe even a five-part series, especially because I've now decided to split out the hits episode. Uh, going to be, a, gonna be a, a, a gruesome episode for sure. After that, we'll be focusing on another city, another mobster. I've got a lot of suggestions uh, I'd also have said that I want to do the Castella Marese War, and I've been kind of, you know, moving through episodes organically, right? I don't, I have a plan, a loose plan, but at the same time, as I come across things that I feel are worth sharing, it, you know, I, I just let it take me where it's going to take me as things appeal to me. So it's been pretty organic, my process of discovering episodes, and eventually I would like to you know, over the long term with this podcast, cover all the families at some point or another. And, you know, maybe even all the major players, although that's pretty aspirational. But for now, I'm just sort of meandering along. And quite honestly, I hope you enjoy my research. As I've said, I absolutely will be sprinkling in more interviews and getting back to movie breakdowns. I really want to do movie breakdowns, but they really have a problem getting through the YouTube copyright filters. Uh, but I'm going to keep trying. 
Uh, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released. And if you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments on YouTube or write us a review on Apple. Lastly, as I said, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com. Follow me on Twitter or Facebook. I'm not as active there. I would love to, to be more active there. Uh, you know, Check out my merch store for sure. But until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.